0: Antioch's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa.
1: And I'm Nigel.
0: This is episode 29, Nightwatch. I'm so excited that we have finally made it to this episode, Nigel. I called it. You did. You did call it. And every single time you talked about it, I just had to like giggle inside because I knew that this this day was coming. I knew what the future was, just like Sam Vime does in this in this novel.
1: Okay, but here's the thing: he didn't travel to when I thought he did. Yes. Yeah, I thought he correct. was going to travel back and kill the last king, but no, it, he just went back like thirty years or so, which I think makes for a better story after having read Night Watch. But it was like, so I bought a physical copy of this book because you uh, talked about this so much and i was like well i'm gonna get a physical copy and not read it off the digital one like i want this and i didn't read the back cover of it i didn't know i didn't want to know what it was about but i turned it over and i saw sweeper on the back of it and i was like Fuck.
0: <laughs> i told you that he was coming back i didn't know if you knew it was going to be a, a watch book or not no I think this is the perfect marriage between Thief of Time and Nightwatch. And actually, well, we'll get into it, but I am very excited to know what you think. Nightwatch is, of course, the 29th book in the Discworld series. It's the sixth one in the Watch series. It was published in 2002, which I didn't think about a lot the first time I read, but I thought about it more this time. Um, I have some things to say about when it was published and how that perhaps influenced some of the themes of the novel. It is widely considered one of the high points of the series in terms of both... my new favorite. Yeah, in terms of both the plot and just the quality of the writing, which we will also talk about. There's one been one adaptation. It's a five-part radio adaptation of the novel that was broadcast on BBC Radio 4. Nightwatch also placed second in the annual Locust Poll for Best Fantasy Novel that year. So it is I very it highly now. regarded both inside and outside the Discworld community. Not only is it about time travel, but it is considered one of the best of the Discworld novels.
1: I wonder if, well, because like, I wonder what Snuff will be like then, because that's the one now that's on all the new reprints of Discworld books, you know, from the author of Snuff, and that's because that won a lot of awards. That's something I've mentioned before. If that's the one that won all of the awards, and Nightwatch is so fucking good, the Watch series is consistently the best series. In, Absolutely, uh, Discworld. Yeah, this is this is my new favorite Discworld book. It 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 totally edged out Reaper Man.
0: I mean, that's high praise, I know, because you love Reaper Man. A quick summary before we get into it, though. Sam Vimes' life is changing. The watch is bigger than it has ever been. The city is growing, and he is about to become a father. But all that is put in jeopardy when a freak accident during a chase transports him back in time thirty years before. He is contacted by Lutza and the monks of history for a difficult task, impersonate his old mentor and teach young Sam everything he knows so that the future will happen. But Vimes remembers what's going to happen. This is the old Ankh-Morpork and the old Night Watch, after all.
1: Real quick, Sam Vimes time travel. Vime travel.
0: Vime travel. <laughs> so uh, there's a couple of things. When you start talking about time travel narratives, there's... You know, the future, uh, which is kind of, you know, at the beginning and the end of this book, we have the, you know, the present time, Sam Vimes, you know, in the in the chronology of the watch books, you know, this is the time period that Vimes is in. But then most of the book takes place, obviously, 30 years before, um, during this old night watch, during this old period of Ankh-Morpork. And this is a period of time that we haven't seen before in Discworld, because even in Color of Magic, we were still looking at Ankh-Morpork under Vetinari's rule. You know, this is, you know, Vetinari is already in charge by the time that the Discworld starts. And this Ackmore Pork is pretty different. It's, you know, it, it's less diverse. There's a lot of political unrest. Um, there's, frankly, a tyrant in charge, you know, the one of the former patricians. And, you know, the main story of the book is sort of this revolution, which is very Les Mis, you know, based, which we can talk about. And what ends up happening is a new patrician is put in charge, and it's Lord Snapcase, who I thought it was very funny that if you're reading this as someone who's been paying attention to previous books, you know that Snapcase is literally the patrician that everyone always talks about as being the worst before Vetinari. Like, everyone's all, you know... in, In previous books, people have always been like, remember Lord Snapcase? You know, like, he was awful.
1: Yeah, mad Lord Snapcase.
0: Yeah, and so it's interesting to me that we like vimes knows what's going to happen you know it, it's interesting that we like vimes kind of know the future but we don't know the specifics of what's going to happen over the couple of days that he's in the past so i think that there's this really interesting tension in this book between the mystery of what's going to happen in the book but then also kind of this knowledge of eventually we get to Vetinari. eventually this bonk goes away what did you think about the differences between the old Ankh Morpork and the new Ankh Morpork?
1: Cause see, I could say like it's not really different because that's kind of the whole thing of the book. Like that's the quote from the book that's put on at least the back cover of my edition. I don't know about your one, the one about revolutions that like they they come and go. But it definitely like this is way more. This is way more like you said. There's way more political unrest and stuff. But it really gives us like a better idea of how. Much the series and like the actual world has improved in terms of like, I don't know. I really liked the, I really liked this old one. Like, I love, I, I've said this before, I love fantasy politics. I love be, uh, I love being in courts full of intrigue and stuff. And like the whole, the whole thing about Lord, um, Winder being so paranoid about assassins and then like there being these like whole conspiracies trying to get him out of power because they think that the ruler they're going to install is going to be a better ruler and obviously I love Les Mis and so that was that was great also
0: (laughs) yeah what I think is interesting though about the Les Mis is that what Pratchett's doing in this book is very different than what he does in say Weird Sisters when he's satirizing Macbeth or in Masquerade when he's like satirizing Phantom of the Opera, those books tend to be like straight up parody, right? Like this is what happens. You know, we're we're going to parody what happens and parallel what happens. Nightwatch in a lot of ways, it has these, these connections with Les Mis, but it's almost like it's trying to mirror image Les Mis more than it is trying to satirize it you know, one one really important detail, of course, is, you know, when Carcer, who is the, the person that Vimes is chasing, the serial killer, basically, that Vimes is chasing and chases back into the past. One of the things that he says, you know, to one of the other Watchmen is, oh, you know, Duke here, you know, Vimes you know, he has it on, uh, he he has it out for me because my original crime was stealing a loaf of bread, which is very much that Jean Valjean, you know, type of storyline. And that puts Carcer in the position of Valjean and Vimes in the position of Javert, except for their mere images of those characters. And so it's very interesting to me the way that Pratchett's playing with Les Mis, but he's not straight up satirizing it is more like he's inverting
1: it yeah it's more in the sense like that dante uses the aeneid for the inferno specifically but also you know like parts of the rest of the divine comedy it's more so that it's like a jumping off point than that we're just going to write a satire because like yeah like you say in um weird sisters like when they have it was his name tom john
0: yeah the king
1: Yeah, and they have all that about him being given over and the prophecies and that kind of thing. It's very much like, how would real people deal with it if you took the logical beats of a story and apply that to a world where they treated them as, like, real items and not part of a plot? But this is like, we're using Les Mis as a backdrop to tell a story which builds on it. Because, like... The revolution in Les Mis is not the French Revolution. That's the thing that a lot of people who haven't read Les Mis don't seem to understand. It's not about the French Revolution. And so, like, ultimately, it means nothing outside of the cast of characters. You know, like, it means a lot to them and their own personal stories. But in the course of history, it doesn't really matter. And I think that's the same here. Like, it matters to Vimes because he wants to get home to Sybil. And it matters to Carcer because he doesn't want to die or, or be arrested. But like, by and large, the events don't really—they don't really matter to Ankh Morpork because, like we said, they're just installing Lord Snapcase. Also, his name is Snapcase. Why did anyone think <laughs> he was a good choice? Ret- I i return to this old college humor video all the time where they're talking about villain names, and it's like they have this like theoretical guy that they call Good Death Punch and <laughs> I- and it's like, this is, yeah, like, why would you ever think he's a good choice? But, like, Vimes even points that out. Is that he goes around in an open-top carriage and talks to people occasionally, and that's what people view as being better than Winder.
0: Because I think young Vi- young Sam, I'm going to say young Sam and Vimes to kind of differentiate.
1: Yeah, I did like that, where it's, it's exclusively Sam and Vimes.
0: Yeah, Sam and Vimes. Sam says, you know, oh, he listens to the people, and vime says yeah but that's that's you know i can listen to the wind it doesn't mean i'm gonna do anything about it yeah and so it it is an interesting thing it actually reminds me more of how i met your mother because there's a scene where ted brings like a new like a girl that he just met to a like a friend's dinner the main character ted um
1: i've never seen it who who plays him
0: josh radnor
1: okay okay i know you're on about now
0: so he brings this girl that he just met to like a, a dinner with friends and it's a dinner dinner at a a restaurant that serves meat and her name is Strawberry and like halfway through the dinner it turns out that she's only there so she can throw fake blood on the on the server and shout meat is murder and she runs out and later he's like who could have predicted that that was going to happen and everybody says her name was Strawberry <laughs> And that's that is that is how I feel about Snapcase. <laughs> His name is Snapcase. I want to kind of go back to the beginning and sort of try because at some point Fimes gets very confused about all of the narratives. And Lutz tells him it's easier just to think of events happening one after another, which is something that I think is a very good way of talking about time travel. Like just think about it as events happening one after the other. So I'd like to go to the beginning of the book Talk about that first. Then we can talk about the middle and then the end. I want to talk about the beginning of this book because I think this book, in a lot of ways, focuses on Vimes. Vimes has always been the main character of these books. But this book is different in the fact that it almost exclusively focuses on Vimes and what's going on in Vimes's life and the different changes that are happening to Vimes's life in a way that the previous books really haven't, because we've always had mm. other characters that we cared about, right? We always cared about Carrot and Angua and Cherry and Detritus, and they appear in this book, but they have no POV moments. Carrot and Angua are barely in this book, so it's really exclusively focusing on Fimes, and there are two things that are sort of happening in this beginning section. One is that Sybil's having the baby, Right. And we yeah. talked about that a little bit last time. And, you know, that's a that's a big change, right? That's becoming a parent is huge. You know, your, your life is never the same after you become a parent. And Vimes is having to deal with that. And both he and Sybil are older, right, than most people are when they become parents. And so he, I think, is dealing, and Col- Colin kind of brings this up in a kind of simplistic way he's kind of dealing with the fact that he knows that the world is awful and we know this about vimes that he has a very nihilistic view of the world in very cynical view of the world but he's having to deal with the fact that he's bringing this new life into the world and that he's responsible for this new life and so the first part of the book is kind of this balance between him thinking about that but then also thinking about these bad things that have happened in the past. We get these teases of what we're going to talk about later because Colin and Nobby and Reg and Vimes, they're all wearing the lilacs. And, you know, there's this big emphasis on, were you there, you know, in the beginning of the book. And so we get all this stuff about like veterans. But then we also get all the stuff about Carcer and this idea that Carcer is sort of. In Vimes' mind right now, at this point in time, Carcer is sort of the incarnation of everything that Vimes is afraid to bring his son into in the world. Mm. And so you have all of these different things that are sort of swirling around Vimes at the beginning of this book.
1: This, I think for his character arc, I think that it's like uh, Nightwatch... Is to Vimes what Skyfall is to James Bond.
0: Interesting. Please continue.
1: So we've taken something which by now has an established formula. We know what the watchbooks are, and it takes away every every recognizable thing and touch and touchdown that that character has, um, and they're sent somewhere back to their childhood, and, you know, with with Bond it's to his childhood home with. Vimes, it's to 30 years previous when he's like new to the watch and went behind the ears. And so he has to like reckon with that and he has to deal with a threat that's like more dangerous than anything he's dealt with before. Cause like that's what I do think that Carcer is the worst thing he's dealt with in any of these books, even like the dragon, even the werewolves in Uberwald. So like he's completely without anything that he would rely on in previous books and so has to like use his own wits and everything that he's learned. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a I think that's a good example of um what I'm going to call the skyfall because like <laughs> you can apply that to other you know like like Thor Ragnarok is the skyfall of the Thor franchise. Yeah. And the last Jedi is the Skyfall of the Star Wars franchise, from what I've heard. Uh, i was from about what about to I've say, heard, like you I, haven't
0: seen Star Wars though.
1: <laughs> no, but I but see, Star Wars is a thing where I don't need to watch it because people will tell me about it.
0: That's true. People will tell you about Star Wars. What did you think about Sybil having the baby? Like having that be kind of the bookend, the frame narrative of this.
1: I liked that as a frame narrative, because it's something that, like, it's something more important than anything that's driving Vimes. Because, obviously, like, the watch is important to him. Carrot, Angua, Kola, Nabi, they're all important to him. But nothing is more important to him than Sybil and, like, this baby and the fact that she, like, survives and the baby is healthy. And, obviously, you know, like, there are more concerns for her health because she's an older woman, but also like the one thing that grounds him and like, you know, later on in the novel is the cigar case that Sybil gave him. And it's a reminder of like what he has to fight to, because there's a stage before that where like his inner monologue, getting back to Sybil is the third thing that comes up and he sort of lost his way. So like, like Sybil is good for Vimes. She's the reason that like he doesn't drink. Like she helped him deal with his alcoholism and gave him the cigar case so he can smoke instead of drinking. And so like she's really his rock. And to have that then like be the through line. And then f- also for it to be a you know like for, for the birth to go well and for him now to have a son and her to be like, we're calling it Sam, no arguments. I tear no, up I a think little. That's really I'm not important. gonna lie. <laughs> oh there's There's parts of this book that had me openly weeping.
0: And and him saying I can teach him how to walk. That was just, that was wonderful. I want to go back to the part about the cigar case because this is really, there's a couple of things here. First, I think this is the first time that scene where he finally gets given the cigar case, right? Because he's constantly reaching for it in the book and not finding it, um, which is supposed to, like you said, be a metaphor for the way that he's reaching for Sybil, but can't He can't find her, right? He can't. He Mm. can't. The Sybil that exists in the past is a child, right? They do not have the relationship. She is not the Sybil that is his wife, right? And so he keeps reaching for that cigar case and he keeps not having it. And he. There's a couple of times in this book where something happens with Vimes that I don't think we've ever happened before that we've ever seen before, right? We've seen Vimes struggle with his mental health before. We've seen him struggle with his alcoholism before. We've seen him struggle with his depression before, because the whole point is that he uses the alcohol to self-medicate his depression. We have never seen Vimes have a straight up panic attack before. He starts to have one before Lutza gives him the cigar case on the street. Like, he becomes completely unmoored for a moment from reality. He, stuff starts to go dark. He can't breathe. He falls to his knees, right? He can't feel his hands. These are all very classic signs of a panic attack. And then he gets given this cigar case, um, which has the inscription on it, to Sam with love from your Sybil. And I love the description. The world moved. But now Vimes no longer felt like a drifting ship. Now he felt the tug of the anchor pulling him around to face the rising tide. And it's not just that he knows now that there, that future exists because he can hold it in his hand. It's that he knows that she exists and that that future is there, right? Th- there is a way that he can anchor himself, literally, is what he says. I, I, I don't know. Have you seen Lost? Lost? The show? Nope. So there is time travel in that show, too. And yeah. Without getting too far into it, there's this idea that if you travel in time, you need a constant. Something that you can return to so you don't go insane, basically. And Sybil is Vime's constant. She is the person mm. that anchors him. That causes him to be able to come home. And I, I found that so... I don't know, like the the relay I've really noticed and become more invested in the relationship between the two of them on this read-through. I, I it's not like I disliked their relationship before. I was just always more invested in Angua and Carrot's relationship. But like this is just so beautiful. Like the way that cause he doesn't talk about her, you know, the same way that we would expect someone to talk about like their wife or whatever. He seems very private about his feelings for her but like it's his actions right it's the way that he moves his whole life around her it's the way that you know she like pulls him home that really tells us everything we need to know about the relationship between the two of them
1: but it's also like that's once everything is right that's parallel then at the very end of the novel like the last line says the world turns towards morning he's escaped that night but it's also really interesting because that's I feel like that's sort of a parallel to, I don't remember the exact wording, but like how it's described when carrot and Angua, I think they, I think it's implied that they have sex. If not, like they, like they kiss and end up sharing a bed, but I'm pretty sure this, there's something along the lines of the world moved. And then it says, because they make the joke about not telling the milkman or whatever, that. You know, that they've moved.
0: Right. Yeah. So it really
1: seems to be that, like, once again, we have this parallel between Carrot and Vimes that they have this anchor in the person that they love.
0: And I just think that's such a powerful way of talking about that kind of relationship. I also, I guess, I, I guess we do have to talk about kind of the end in relationship to this, but like, obviously, things go wrong with the birth. And, mm. He, of course, you know, immediately goes and gets Dr. Lon, who I want to talk about, to help out. And I love this scene, not because I wanted her to be in danger, but because I loved how the Watchmen, like Kara, Angua, Cherry, Detritus, all of them, close ranks around him in this moment. It's not just because of the threat of Carcer. He said, there's a line in the book where it says, like, it seemed like the whole watch was there because they didn't want to be anywhere else. It, and I, I think they all love Sybil, too. I don't think it's all about Vimes. I just think that it is interesting to me that he, he is like their father, right? He is the person who they all look to, and they all deeply care about him. And the fact that they're all here for him in the only way that they really know how, you know, in this moment, I think is just... You know, that's that's very different from the watch that we saw at the beginning of Guards,
1: Guards. Yeah.
0: And so, you know, you get that moment. And then you also get this just moment where he, because, you know, he's kind of in this fugue state, right? Because he's, one, he's very tired. But two, he, you know, is very worried, obviously, about what's happening to Sybil. And he says usually always there was a part of Vimes that watched the other parts because he was at heart a policeman. And this goes back to the whole, like, well, who watches you? I do, right? I I watch myself. This time it wasn't there. It was in here with the rest of him staring at nothing and waiting. And, like, the idea that, like, her being in peril, like, you know, like, the person who watches him, even that person sort of fails in this
1: moment. I know in the last book, You know, it's like Vimes going past like a certain point. He's gone past the line, but this is like he's gone past everything, and he can do no like. There's nothing physically he can do to help out, and I think the watch sort of senses this.
0: Yeah, he's done everything he can,
1: and he just has to hope that the midwife and then Doctor Lawn can help Sybil. You know, and so like they can sense they can sense that, but it's also like when he's talking about. Carcer still being at large and the guards on his house, he's like that they're trusted people. And he, you know, he trusts them not to get bored, that they'll stand there for as long as needs be. Like, and, and you see that even when, like, after Vimes gets Lawn to go, Detritus, like, blocks him straight away. He came rushing in, Sarge. And, and Vimes says, like, Well, I, I i asked him to. He's here to help with the birth. But, like, straight away, Detritus is ready with. Yeah, his big crossbow.
0: The peacemaker.
1: The peacemaker. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: what did I tell you about Mister Mister Safety Catch?
0: <laughs> and I love that Red Coley is there, and he's just like, <laughs> "All right, let's bring Doctor Lawn around under the pump."
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh my god. Yeah. I just that I don't know that moment got me this time. Like the way that they. That was just so beautiful in, like, so many ways. And, of course, everything goes well. Dr. Lon is able to, you know, help her, and she seems very healthy at the end of this. The baby seems healthy. What do you think about baby Sam? I mean, obviously, he's just, like, a bundle at this point. But, like, going forward in the books, how do you think Vimes as a parent will be? Or Vimes and Sybil as parents?
1: I'm not sure. Because, like, like I know there's more watch books, and now, like, the whole thing you mentioned before about Vimes knowing that the world is a flawed place and like in that conversation between Colin and him you know where it's like will you you know when you're a parent and you get to a certain age then you're trying to like improve the world that your child is in yeah. so like i think it's definitely going to affect how Vimes polices but in terms of civil i'm not sure like I'm not sure practically in terms of like what, what action she's going to do. I know she's going to be a great parent, but like, I don't know actually what she is going to do.
0: Well, it's interesting because I was trying to think about people, other parents in the disc world, right. That we've seen. And there's not a lot of examples. Like as I was trying to like, think about parentage, we have Cohen with Conina, right. Except for Cohen isn't even in the book. With We just get her account of how he parented her. We have Death and Isabel, which is its own dysfunctional parenting. And I'm not even sure if Death really knows how to parent, right? Because he's Death.
1: But he knows how to grandparent. He knows how to
0: grandparent. Yeah. And so we have that relationship, too. Um, And then we have Nanny Og and her children. But her children are all grown up. Um, and they have, it's more of like a, a clan type of relationship. Magrat does have, you know, young Esme, little Esme at the end of the witch's books in Carpe Jugulum, But we don't really get much beyond, you know, her just carrying the child around and, you know, making sure that the child is physically okay. You know, so there's, I mean, I I forgot until this very book when Colin has this conversation with Nobby that Colin was a parent. We've never met any of Colin's children.
1: We've never met his wife.
0: I know, and so I'm, I'm actually very curious to know what this is going to look like in terms of that because all of the other parenting relationships we've seen have either been—they're not
1: active ones.
0: Yeah, they're either not active or they're extremely dysfunctional, to say the
1: least. No, because as well, like we have, like in sorcery. Ipsilor the red is like not mm-hmm. a good parent to coin right um and like a lot of the times we do see parenting or like surrogate parenting in terms of like people creating people or things it's negative right. you know with like like the whatever sentient force is in the going you know yeah or what's the name of the the golem that does the killing in feet of clay the king the king yeah I'm trying you know, to remember like his that,
0: actual name, but yes,
1: like that's like they're they're sort of like the the Frankenstein's monster example of parenting, exactly. Where, the
0: unnatural child,
1: yeah, the unnatural child shunned by its. Oh, there's a quote from House of Leaves, something about like the unending string of fathers. I'm gonna see if I can find it because it's like right on the table in front of me. Just Meshuggah. while we talk,
0: that's the name of Mishuga. The... Yes, yeah, Mishuga.
1: Yeah, that means crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no. So it's like we're never really presented with anything close to a parent and a young child. You know, like we know that there's good family dynamics with how the Ogs stay together. But like like you say, that's, that's years after they were kids.
0: I guess we could also say we have Mort and Isabel as parents to Susan. And they were horrible parents to Susan in terms of trying to like shape her into something that she wasn't yeah and then you know she spends most of her time in the books trying to undo all of that
1: yeah no exactly like the disc has this wonderful cast of characters and a comparative paucity of good parents
0: exactly so that's that was one of the things i was thinking about this time through is like i'm both vimes and sybil want to be good parents like they do um very clearly i think part of this book that I noticed this time, one of the big themes is that he has to go back in time to parent himself.
1: True self-preservation, as they say.
0: Right. He has to parent himself in order to become a good parent to young Sam, to baby Sam. Because the whole, the parallel between him teaching his younger self how to walk, and then at the end saying, I can teach him how to walk. I think is important. The idea that he's able to go back and be there for his past self in a way that no one else had been.
1: Cause there's all that talk about his mother, you know, yeah. um, is it definite that like when he's, he's talking about his mother, when Sam is talking about his mother, that she's dead at this stage. Like yes. that's definitely. Yeah.
0: Because young Sam invites him invites vimes to tea thinking that he's Keel, John Keel. And Vimes says, like, he, he brushes him off by saying, like, oh, you know, Lance Constables don't invite sergeants to tea. Like, that's just not something you do. But in his head, he says, I know for a fact that she's been dead. Like, she's been up at small gods these past 10 years, and I would rather put my hand on the table and give Swing the hammer than go down that street again. Like, he just does not want to see her, because it's it would be too much for him to see her again.
1: There's a lot in this book about... The sort of abused nature and childhood that seems to attract people to the watch. like there's a line yeah. later on when they're talking about shedding tears, and it says that young Nobby had already shed enough tears that a body could cry by his young age. And like, you know, yeah. after the stuff about his childhood in, hogfather we you know it's like they're none of them are really coming from good backgrounds Um, and we get more of that on old scanner here you know when he's like keel gave him a spoon and scanner took it from him
0: well yeah and vimes later when he's talking to young nobby i think young nobby says something about you know it's a good thing that scanners in prison and Vimes says thinks yeah because when he got out he used to break your arms you know, there I mean, we already knew this about Nobby's childhood, but there is this sense that the people who are there or who stick with it do come from these like very abusive backgrounds. I mean, and and young Sam himself, this is again not new information. This has come up in previous books, but Vimes says, you know, you were in a gang, weren't you? Of course you were. You know, we all were. And, you know, in previous books, Vimes has said that the watch saved his life, that he would have died in a gang if he hadn't joined up with the watch. And so you know, there is this real sense that all of them have had these horrible upbringings or, you know, really struggled.
1: And like with them closing ranks around Sybil and Vimes, there's a lot about that with them closing ranks around the people who were actually there on that day and the people who get to wear the lilac, you know, in the sense of like private grief.
0: Yeah. And I, I just thought of this now that you brought up Vimes's mom. Vimes himself didn't have a father because Sam. when he asks Sam, he's like, oh, well, your, your dad, you know, knowing the answer. And Sam says, oh, you know, he died when I was three. My mom said he was hit by a cart. And Vimes says, oh, she was a champion liar, our mom. Mm. It never says exactly what actually happened with Vimes' dad. But like the idea is he grew up without a dad. Kiel becomes that father figure for him. Little knowing that Kiel is actually himself older. So he he literally is stepping into the role of being his own father.
1: I found the quote in House of Leaves, I think it is important to, or germane even to the discussion. Navidson is not Minos. He did not build the labyrinth. He only discovered it. The father of that place, be it a Minos, Daedalus, St. Mark's god, another father who swore, Be gone, relieve me from the sight of your detested form, which is probably Frankenstein, I'm pretty sure. A whole paternal line here following a tradition of dead sons vanished long ago, leaving the creature within all the time in history to forget to grow, to consume the consequences of its own terrible fate. This tradition of paternal negligence and the damage that does then to young men sort of really comes out in this book. Vimes has to steer Sam into being a somewhat decent human being, you know, starting off with we don't take bribes, even if Nock says it's okay. You know, I I, like, you know, I bet he told you that was all right.
0: Because it's funny, because you can read this two different ways, metaphorically speaking, right? Like, literally what happens is he goes back in time and parents himself. But you can see it metaphorically as him being the parent that he never had. And that allows him to be a good parent or perhaps be a good parent to baby Sam right in the future. Or you could even see this as a, a giant metaphor for healing yourself, for going back and reliving that trauma in order mm. to gain closure on it. Because there's a big part of Vimes at the beginning of the book that doesn't have closure on this particular instance. Because Keel dying, from his perspective at the beginning of the book, Keel dying was another abandonment. You know, it was another trauma in a long line of traumas.
1: Do we ever think there was a John Keel?
0: Well, there was. Do we think there was... But he died.
1: Yeah, no, no. But, like, the like, because Vimes has different memories. You know, like, with how the... Is it the Dolly sisters thing where, where there was a fight there, but he prevented it by apprehending one of Unmentionables, yeah. you know, and how that changes slightly. Like, do we ever think that there was a real John Keel, or was it always Vimes?
0: So that gets us into the time travel of this.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because, the, like... From from the start, like, I was like, oh, this is a bootstrap paradox. And I know that from Doctor Who, like, the whole, like, a guy being so fond of Beethoven, I think is how Peter Capaldi introduces it in an episode, that he, he invents time travel and goes back and wants to talk to Beethoven about his music. It's Beethoven or Mozart or something. And he goes back and he, he can't find any instance of this composer at all. And so, like, he uses his own knowledge and becomes, he becomes mozart beethoven whatever the fuck you know and so it begs the question then was there ever really one because like yeah there was a real man called john keel but like how do we know that the person that vimes remembers wasn't just vimes from a different timeline that this hasn't happened in some cycle like what do you think
0: it all comes down to quantum as Lutz says i had to talk about this with sam a little bit to kind of like tease out my thoughts because sam is like the expert on time travel. So what ends up happening is, and I didn't notice this the first time I read it through, so it was really cool to read it in order this way. What happens is that Vimes basically gets caught up in the aftermath of what happens in Thief of Time. I thought originally that this was like a freak accident, and it is a freak accident, but like when he is chasing Carcer in... On the rooftops of the Unseen University, if you pay attention to what is going on with the lightning in the city, this is happening at the same time as Thief of Time, as the moment when time breaks for the second time. Is it? (laughs) Yeah, because lightning strikes on the other side of the city. And like, I bet you if we went back into Thief of Time, we could actually put these two books side by side in some ways. And so, like, he gets caught up in time breaking basically. And so he gets put back into the past, except for the fact that the past that he's put back in, Lutza says, is not the same past that he remembers, which means it's a multiverse situation. There are two pasts that are standing next to each other, but only one present. So he has to do his job, right? To connect the past that he's in now to the present. So he can remember the other past, but he has to... He he can't really change things in the past that he's in. He can try, right? He can arrest the, the person who was going to bust up the Morphic Street conspiracy. He can make sure that these people don't die on the barricades. But at the end of the day time itself wants to happen in a certain way. And Lutza says that, like, it doesn't matter what you do. You just have to play the game, but time is going to try to make things happen the way that they happened, which is a really interesting philosophical discussion. It kind of reminds me of 11 uh, 2263 where he's constantly going back and having to kind of fight with time because time wants JFK to die, right? And so, like, it mm. is a very interesting thought about the time travel narrative, John Keel was a real person. He, di- he always died. And it was always yeah. Vimes that taught himself. It was always that way. Vimes can remember a different past because he basically stepped through from a different universe into this one. That's how quantum works.
1: Okay. But no, no, no. no. What, I'm, what I'm hypothesizing is, do you think that the past that Vimes is remembering in that past do you think that that john keel was vimes from another multiverse that stepped in and had the same thing happen and then returned to a different multiverse that's what i'm wondering
0: it's possible we can never know that is the thing and vimes can never know that
1: yeah but that that's what i wanted to know what what do you think because i think yeah like in all instances this is what happens i know that like in this specific case it was always vimes but i think Personally, in every case, it's always vimes. It's
0: always vimes. I mean, it's quite possible.
1: Oops, all vimes.
0: It's all vimes. I think that our hint to that, that that might actually be true, is that Vetinari figures it out at the end because Vetinari was also there.
1: Vetinari figures it out, but also Lane recognizes him as Keel. Or lawn, Lon. sorry.
0: Yeah, lawn recognizes him again. That's because in this universe, it, that has always happened. But it is interesting to me that Vetinari, like, had half of the puzzle as he said, and then the the other half, like, clicks into place for him.
1: And he sat in it for thirty years.
0: I know. Well, that's Vetinari, though. He's always gonna be. I love how his mind
1: that. works. So, first of all, I think as a time travel story, it's fantastic. And it doesn't get too bogged down in the details. It sets up straight away that like history is going to happen and you're in it. And so like already we have that like flow in motion and we don't have to get too bogged down into paradoxes and and the trouble of meeting your younger self and all the stuff that like bogs down a lot of like modern time travel stories. But also... When they try and explain it, they don't actually explain it. Vimes understands something which allows him to like keep going. But like Sweeper is like he explains it and Vimes is like, oh, I understand. Okay, so that's how it is. And then Lutsa's like, No, but it's a good lie. So like it really um <laughs> it really encapsulates the thing. And so you do like it obeys its own internal logic, but no one actually understands it. You just understand implicitly that this is how it works. And so I think that, like, mechanically as well, it's a really good time travel story. But as well, in terms of Discworld, it's really interesting as a follow-up to things like Witches Abroad, where you have this concept of, like, stories wanting to play out in a certain way, and the story and narrative has to, like, go a certain way. And this is now like time is a narrative. Time is a story. And so like it has to follow the way that it's meant to go.
0: Two things to that. One, I, I am right about the the Thief of Time thing. There is a little hint about it that this is the same storm that happens in Thief of Time. And that's on page my page 54 where it says they said afterwards that a bolt of lightning hit a clockmaker's shop in the street of cunning artificers stopping all the clocks at that instant. That is literally what thief of time is when it hits jeremy's Uh shop and later lutza says you were caught up in a, a big time event basically and there's nothing bigger than that event right and so it's 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 interesting because this really feels to me like lutza and q are like still picking up the pieces from that event like they're going around like fixing all the little all the little things that are left over anyway we can talk about that in a minute
1: like, there is that thing where Sweeper then, like, talks to Q, you know, where it's like, I wonder what will win out. And then, you know, Q says, oh, I think historical imperative, isn't it, will win out? Yeah. The
0: abbot says that. Because the abbot says, don't don't mess with it. But I th- oh, but it's he the says, abbot, but when Yes, He's like, don't mess with it. But when you do, I think historical imperative will win out. I love seeing, like, a little glimpse of the abbot I- in there. That was pretty good
1: also look at this
0: yeah night watch
1: that is one of my favorite paintings and i was really i was really lucky to to get to see it when i was in amsterdam last summer it's behind like a massive fucking meter of <laughs> resi- like bullet resistant glass and the painting oh, it's itself is massive that's yeah that's what i didn't realize how big it was
0: yeah, Rembrandt. I definitely got some Rembrandt vibes. Like, I do feel like this book very much reflects that painting in some ways.
1: What does your edition look like? You're using that like hardcover one, right? The the one you have all the other ones in.
0: Mine has both vimeses on the front walking together.
1: This is my one, um, which really emphasizes that Rembrandt thing.
0: Yeah, I, I the, think that's Paul Kirby's uh, the original Corey art. One. Yeah. Yeah. There's a moment when we're talking about whether or not he can change things and whether or not he should try to change things. So he's sitting there, and this is after he's already done some of the things that didn't happen, right, in the original timeline. He's thinking about what happens if he's able to actually prevent the deaths of the seven people who died, including himself, as it turns out, in this conspiracy Would he be able to go back then? Supposing Madame was right and he offered the post of commander, not as a bribe, but because he'd earned it. That'd change history. He took out the cigar case and stared hard at the inscription. Let's see, he thought, if I never met Sybil, we wouldn't get married, and she wouldn't buy me this, and so I couldn't be looking at it. He stared hard at the curly engraving, almost willing it to disappear. It didn't. On the other hand, that old monk had said that what happened stays happened. And now Vimes had a mental picture of Sybil and Carrot and Detritus and all the rest of them frozen in a moment that would never have a next moment. He wanted to go home. He wanted it so much that he trembled at the thought. But if the price of that was selling good men to the night, if the price was filling those graves, if the price was not fighting with every trick that he knew, then it was too high. It wasn't a decision that he was making, he knew. It was happening far below the areas of the brain that made decisions. It was something built in. There was no universe anywhere where a Sam Vimes would give in on this, because if he did, then he wouldn't be Sam Vimes anymore.
1: The, like, that like That's his like tenet, because with Vimes more so than like pretty much any other character in the disc world, it really comes down to is and isn't. And maybe that's because he's part of a police force and has to be the line. And there's a lot in this book about, like, the ethics of policing, policing by consent and things like that. And so, like, he has to have a hard line. But Vimes is very much, like, either is or isn't. There's no room for, like, Grey with Vimes. And so, like, if Vimes is the one to watch the police and ensure that they're, they're doing things right and he's the one who watches himself then he has to stay true to that core tenet or else like it would invalidate all the work he's done because if he can if he can change on this then really like like when you follow that down then he could go back on everything else he's done with the watch you know like it sets that up that like if he's willing to compromise on this then if a situation came down the line where something presented itself as more appealing than keeping the watch in good standing, he could take it.
0: He's always made it very clear that he needs those rules. He needs that code that he lives by, or else he's just going to start drinking again. Yeah. It's the way that he keeps himself going. It's the way that he is able to exist in this world that he sees as fundamentally wrong. That Nari has a different perspective on it. We've talked about that before. But it is interesting to me that it's like, if he go, if he goes against this part of himself, like, that's it, right? He might as well just give up. Yeah. And so it, it is a very interesting aspect of Vimes that I think we've seen before, but this feels like a very fully realized version of it. This idea that it is Vimes against time and he knows that he's going to lose, but he can't help but fight anyway. In fact, he kind of wants to lose because he wants to go home, but that doesn't mean he's not going to do his best.
1: It comes down to you do the job that's in front of you mm-hmm. and the job that's in front of him isn't beating time. It's arresting Carcer and getting back to Sybil. Like that's, that's what he has to like reckon with. Because I think, I think when it comes down, like, like when it comes down to, if you were in that place, the, the seven people who died, with the exception of red shoe, because he came back through sheer stubbornness, <laughs> they were all senseless deaths and they were done you know, during an, um, an amnesty, you know, Yeah. I nearly said armistice, you know, like there, there were completely pointless deaths of innocent people who were just doing the job in front of them. Everything in Vimes, like core, you know, like if, if this were in the, if this were in the present timeline and he didn't have to worry about like changing the course of history, Vimes would do everything in his power to stop senseless deaths, but like
0: it's history a big will win out. Right? Yeah. And Vines has always been against big crimes. He can't always stop them, but he's against them.
1: Yeah, like, there's that bit early on where he talks about private law, which is just, like, that's just an extension, then, of, of big crimes. But I did think it was funny that... Um, <laughs> what's, the, what's the old captain's name? Tilden? T- Tilder?
0: Yes, Tilden.
1: Tilden, yeah, he's replaced with Rust. Yeah. Which is something that Vimes doesn't remember, but now, like, it's a challenge that Vimes has to deal okay. with Rust again.
0: What did you think about that? The idea that Rust as a villain sort of comes back in a younger form, and, and Vimes has to, like. And there's a moment where Vimes is like, man, if I killed him right now,
1: like- <laughs> it would save me so much grief down the line. Yeah. Yeah, no we get more of a sense of like the type of person that rust is and the type of person he represents with this younger version of him and how that relates to everything vimes is against he the way he issues orders and the fact that he like listens to tone of voice and not the actual words people are like he expects people to follow and obey him and if they sound like they're doing that that's what he wants
0: Before we get off the time travel bit, I do want to talk about two other things. One is that the narrative here is, I did not know this the first time I read it. Last year, Elise for Monkey had us watch the film Time After Time, which was a 1979 film directed by Nicholas Meyer. And it had uh, Malcolm McDowell and David Warner and uh, Mary Steenburgen in it. It's a good film. I actually really recommend it. But it's a film in which British author H.G. Wells uses his time machine to pursue Jack the Ripper into the 20th century. Hmm. Jack the Ripper flees Wells into the 1970s. And Wells has to, like, go and get him, basically. And that is what this is. Vimes has to go and get a serial killer who has been let loose in the past. And he knows that the other reason he has to fight so hard is because he's balancing out the damage that Carcer is doing to the timeline.
1: Carcer also is a good example of, like, what... Because, like, Carcer doesn't benefit from big crimes, so he doesn't. Doesn't have the sort of immunity that Dragon King of Arms or Rust does when they commit a crime. But Carcer gets away because he's sort of, like, gaslights everyone into believing that he's innocent you know with the way he talks and smiles and says haha constantly yeah no so like a lot of this is really a lot of this like down to the choice of the people we see come back and like this the the context of the situations that they're in are all just to like solidify vime like this is a vimes character piece and it goes back to then as well like there's basically no deviations from vimes in this entire novel like there's a few bits where he'll like leave a room and you'll see Coates talking to uh to knock or whatever after he's left the room and then that and then like when you get to the end then you get more bits with lord Snapcase on his own but by and large it's just
0: yes there are a few deviations with Veterinari who gets a few uh pov stuff which we've never had veterinary pov really before not like this
1: well when he yeah, not like this. When he goes to visit Leonard of Quirm, he see, does. that's all
0: we get. Yeah. yeah. We also get a couple of POVs from the soldiers' perspective on the other side of the barricade. But for the most part, you are absolutely right. It is mostly Vimes dealing with all of these issues. And the other thing I want to talk about is actually Lutza and Q, because this is the other big monks of history book. This is them like trying oh, to Oh, so do this... we not
1: see them again?
0: I won't answer that one way or another, but I don't think we see them in quite as central of a role as we see them here. But they are trying to pick up the pieces, and they are trying to help Vimes fix this issue. They're sort of working together with him. What did you think about Lutsa and Q in this? And what did you think about the interactions between both of them and Vimes? A character who, for the most part, hasn't had anything to do with magic or supernatural things for the entirety of his run on this,
1: it was so funny. Genuinely, one of the like the funniest parts of the book was just anytime he had to deal with them, and especially like at the end, then where like Lutza will say one thing and uh, and Vimes will be like, uh, okay, and then Q will be like, that's not how it is at all. <laughs> but it's also I don't know. I think it's very funny that um, <laughs> I think it's very funny that vimes can find his way back to them through his like this is another thing like we really get to see vimes in prime cop mode
0: yeah
1: you know to go back to the skyfall of it all you know like we, we've never seen vimes like this because even at the start of guards guards he's you know down on his look and in the um in the depths of struggling with his alcoholism and so then we get to see a new version of that when carrot comes in, we've never seen Vimes like on the beat properly before, and so like he gets to harness all that he does, and the fact that he can like even when he meets up Madam, you know, he steps out into the street and can j- tell instantly where he is.
0: This feels like a payoff to all of those scenes where he, you know, he feels the street. He feels the cobblestones and he knows where he is. That has felt mainly metaphorical before in terms of the way that he orients himself within Ankh-Morpork. This actually serves a plot purpose. Like the fact that he's able to find his way back to the temple just with his feet is incredible. It feels like a payoff.
1: Yeah, although we are still dealing with Terry Pratchett's like slightly worrying trope of people being slip things in their drinks without them knowing. Yeah, like that happens. That happens first of all. And then they're like, and then like Vimes is like, I do not want that happening to me ever again. And they're like, okay, well, we'll just they set themselves up for this where they're like, oh, we'll just walk you back the long way. And Vimes is still able to find that just by like walking back that long way.
0: I think it's funny that they keep like knocking him out. He gets knocked out so many times in this book. He gets knocked out by like the agony ants several times and by uh, the history monks and all of this.
1: He knocks his younger self out.
0: It serves no purpose because he always can figure out where he is. <laughs> like, just, just like ask him to come along.
1: <laughs> but now here's the thing. Now that I'm after saying it, though, I wonder whether that was on purpose. That they brought him back the long way so he could find his way back to the temple.
0: That's a great question.
1: Because I doubt it. Then as well, when he drops, when he drops his cigar in the thing q and Lutze make a comment that that's part of the pattern now and then at the end the last scene in the book is vimes finding his way back to the temple and throwing the sakara butt over the wall and it talks about it moving in the same way that it does back then mm-hmm. sort of completing this pattern so i wonder whether this is like the point
0: perhaps i mean it is interesting too that like time it, it's kind of metaphorical right the pattern pulls the cigar to the middle vimes is being pulled to the middle of this event despite not belonging there so
1: yeah it 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 makes sense
0: i really loved q in this too because we got little bits of q in thief of time we get to see more of him because it's him and Lutza together he does say the james bond line he says it to vimes now please pay attention sir vimes he says that at the end yes
1: and he's previously said the, the q line of um don't break it or, yeah, or whatever don't, break
0: that. It. don't touch it
1: yeah i thought it was good and it seems to be that they're like uniquely positioned out of all the places where the history monks can be other like that's where they need to like ankh-morpork seems to be the center of where things happen in one way or another where exactly is ankh-morpork on the disc it's not too close to the rim so i'm wondering whether it is pretty much central to the disc because like narratively it is in one way or another characters will pass through ankh-morpork even if it's briefly you know like they go to they go to ankh-morpork in equal rights tepich starts off there in pyramids in the guild of assassins we're going through ankh-morpork constantly at various points so it seems to be that this ankh-morpork itself is oh what's that line from the start of a Study in Scarlet, that vast cesspool into which all life is invariably drawn.
0: I mean, it is supposed to be like a Victorian London. And I think that yeah, this old like ankh that... is even more like that than the, the new Ankh-Morpork.
1: Oh, I can't remember what series it was. There was some series where it's like, you know, to do with time and it's like, you know, like like important places, kind of like like thin places in horror fiction, you know, where yeah. the worlds rub against each other really closely, but like for time that's what like morpork feels like and especially because like sweeper is there and he's the most important one
0: and i think it also continues this idea of like like they want the people of Ankh-Morpork to underestimate them and so they like kind of play these very racial stereotypes to get people oh, yeah, to Oh like of like mr lower mr their soon
1: in the Shonky shop
0: yeah and you notice the way his voice changes cuz at first you think oh this is kind of racist like the way that he's talking to vimes in the shonky sh- shonky shop ah say that five times fast
1: and then when he goes to the mannequin he's he speaks he speaks completely normally
0: boy is he pissed yeah like there's this like there's this switch there's this code switch right that's happening um and but this fits into who Lutsa is right lutza is constantly underestimated because people just see him as this little man you know sweeping
1: do you know who he is and I know this because I've started watching this show. He's Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last yes,
0: Airbender. Yes, 100%. Yes, absolutely. Or you could say Uncle Iroh is Lutza.
1: Oh, yeah. Came first. But yeah, that's, well, that's what he's like, I guess. That is
0: absolutely what Lutza is like, 100%. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the actual revolution itself. And there's a lot of threads that we can talk about here. So I just kind of want to like pick on each one. I want to talk first about the other... So, if Carcer is the main villain of this, and Winder and Snapcase are kind of side villains, the other really main villain of this is Find the Swing, who is the captain of the Unmentionables, um, the Cable Street Particulars, which very much operates like a SS type of secret police force it's a secret police force it's it's very much this idea of they're a special task force that's designed to root out revolutionaries and we all know that winder is very paranoid right about revolutionaries and so he's given the swing a lot of latitude in how to deal with undesirable elements as it's called Find The Swing also, and I I would not have appreciated this the first time I read it because I didn't know much about phrenology and I didn't know much about race science, specifically, or eugenics. Find The Swing is a eugenicist who uses a pseudoscience where he measures people's heads and measures different features of theirs in order to conclude things about them as a person.
1: Well, First of all, he's a nice—well, not nice— But you know what I mean? Parallel to Dragon King of Arms, who is also eugenicist, but like on the blood, like, you know, about the bloodline thing. But like the whole phrenology thing was a really common thing in Victorian England. You know, like it's a I think I've brought this up on this podcast before. It might have been a different one. That line from Great Expectations where Magwitch is talking about, you know, because he was a convict in prison. He had people perform phrenology on him and they're measuring the size of his head and he's would well, like really they should have been measuring his stomach because he was starving but like that that's the whole thing with, with like you know the clerk that vimes accosts and he's like oh oh no i was just i was just taking down the measurements and stuff i, I didn't do anything bad and like that's that scene because it, like these are all the people who the measurements have damned quote unquote damned because Carcer, Carcer has it done to him and Finally Swing is satisfied with what he finds. He, he promotes thinks that him. He, like that. Yeah, the Carcer is good enough for a promotion to, to sergeant or whatever as well. He's a sergeant in, in in the unmentionables. And so like he's using this fucking pseudoscience as an excuse for untold brutality. Like we don't know what happened in the other cells like it's never described to us but like you know he says that like there's people who well if they're not dead they've gone that far inside of them that they they'll never come out and Vimes has to like mercy kill them because they're you know they're they're in no they're in no like good shape and we had kind of hints of this before but, like it's kind of depressing to know that this is still to come you know how like they say that snapcase used to like to take people apart and even like kids it mentioned in one of like the other books in the other watch books. And it's really, but like the whole phrenology thing really goes to show that like the beast that Vimes is always talking about, always being there. Like for some people, it takes very little for them to like accept it and let the beast fully control them. Like if they can rationalize it away with, the numbers and the measurements tell me this in the case of Find the Swing or Rustin Jingo, just calculating that the loss of life in the, the war with Clatch is an acceptable atrocity. Yeah, because there's that bit earlier on in the book where he's like, they come from families who subtract the the number of casualties on your side from the casualties on their side. And if the number is positive, then it's a good victory.
0: This was something that made me think a lot when I first read it as a teenager. This scene where they, they basically during the revolution, they go in and they like basically free all the prisoners in this place, and then they torch it, right? And Vimes knows this is going to happen, right? Because he asks Colin to go get a bottle of brandy so he can Molotov mm. cocktail, basically the uh, the place. Like we know it's bad, even though Pratchett doesn't go into a lot of detail because Pratchett generally isn't a graphic writer in terms of violence. Um, But we know it's bad because of some of the descriptors, like you said, of of Vime's mercy killing. We see kind of some of the instruments that have clearly been used, right, to torture people. Uh, Nancy Ball faints, right? Uh, Sam throws up and he's like shaking you know after seeing this which by the way knowing your younger self is seeing all of these things i mean i guess vimes knows that he has to see them you know to become the person i know he she is. has
1: seen them like vimes presumably has memories of him seeing them beforehand right
0: right he says later he remembers keel coming out and telling him that it was over and so like you know it is it is a very interesting like it's he's reliving a trauma and he knows that he's about to relive it the idea of going in to free these people and seeing all these things i mean he almost kills the clerk he almost kills the uh, torturer right by strapping him in and lighting the place on fire um although he stops young sam from killing him which i want to talk about it's finally swings rationale that I find to be so fascinating this time around. Because one, there's the phrenology of it where, it, I mean, and this is how they used to try to prove, you know, this this was a way that they tried to prove that people from lower classes or criminals were always supposed to be that way, right? That they just, they're genetically predisposed. And that's why we should have eugenics, right? That's why we should prevent people from marrying other people or reproducing because they're just going to get their dirty genes, you know, in the... In the gene pool, but it's also the way that they used mm. to justify slavery by saying that black people specifically had different mental capacities. And we can prove this by measuring their heads, which is bullshit, obviously. It's racist bullshit. But the thing that really struck me this time. Was when finally swing when he's fighting vimes and he says, you know, you don't understand in cases of national emergency, you know, there are things that are more important than the so-called rights of and then he doesn't finish the sentence because they're fighting. But it was the phrase national emergency that stuck out to me this time because I'm older now and I know how that phrase is used a lot now within like Mm. national politics. And I remember that this book came out in 2002, which was After 9-11, and it was when things like the Patriot Act in the U.S. were becoming more and more prevalent. And this idea of, like, well, national security, national emergency, like, we, your rights don't matter as much as security. This is also when we had started, you know, the Forever War. And I don't know when Guantanamo Bay opened as a prisoner camp. Let me see. I can actually look that up.
1: Just on the topic of Guantanamo Bay, I there was a book I read. It's the start of a series by Matthew Riley. It's called Seven Ancient Wonders in either the US or the UK. And it's got a different title in the opposite one. It's one of those books where they change the title for no real reason. But like it's talking about Guantanamo Bay and the way that it exists on Cuban soil. I can't remember how it explains it. And the book is out in the shed, so I'm not going to go and try and find it. But it exists in this weird, like, legal loophole where, like, technically anything can happen there. And it's, like, that's fucking terrifying. But also yeah. this concept of national em- emergencies, I mean, now is really prevalent with bill, the one that's, like, supposed to be just about TikTok. Yeah. But when you, like, read it and it's talking about, en- like, you know, political enemies or whatever, and it lists out all these ones. But that's, that can change at any time without warning truly Orwellian thing of like Oceania. We've always been at war with Oceania. We've always been at war with Eurasia.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Guantanamo Bay, by the way, opened in January of 2002. So I don't know if it was open when Pratchett was writing this book, but it's just so hard to not see the connection between the post 9-11 rhetoric of national security and this prison camp, this real prison camp in Cuba that people were tortured at horribly.
1: Wait, so when did you say, sorry, when did you say Guantanamo Bay opened up?
0: 2002, January of 2002.
1: But it was obviously in use beforehand because it's mentioned as a U.S. military base in, like, A Few Good Men.
0: No, it's always been a military base. The prison camp opened in 2002. Oh,
1: right, the prison camp. Right, yeah. Okay, sorry.
0: And people were horribly tortured there, and it's still open as a prison camp. There are still prisoners being held there despite people it being used as like a political thing but that's always what comes up oh yeah we hate to torture people and we can't do it on u.s soil but national emergency right and that is exactly what these swing is using as his justification for what he's doing he just and, and vines yeah. even says like he has a list of crimes and it doesn't matter what you did or didn't do he's just going to get you to confess to them
1: but as well, the like, what's the end of that quote where we can forget about the particulars of, like, in times of national emergency, what's the the end the of that? So
0: the so-called rights, we 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 cannot. I don't remember the exact quote, but it's like we can't be bogged down by the so-called yeah. rights. It's the so-called rights part that got me.
1: It, well, it seemed to me when I was reading that that's aping like things like the Declaration of Independence and you know like Hobbes and the rights of man and things like that where. We, we can just forget about all of that, you know, like, oh, we're entitled to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness in the Declaration of Independence and things like that. But like we can forget about that when it when it serves the national interest, like when you want to segregate people of color in the US, they're not entitled to those same liberties.
0: Or trans people. I'm not going to get into yes. the most recent stuff about trans people in the U.S. because, like, I just can't even emotionally engage with it right now.
1: No, it's terrifying.
0: But that is what is being used right now, is this idea of national security and national emergency. And it it will lead to people getting hurt, um, trans people specifically. And so, so, yeah, so that is what is happening here. And it's just so – I think I appreciate what he's doing much more now in terms of this place – And Pratchett mentioned this in a interview about Nightwatch um, because he was asked about the humor and how the humor is, uh, he was asked by the interviewer, it's been said that Nightwatch is slightly darker and covers more adult themes. And he responded, what do you mean that they weren't adult beforehand? There's a revolution. People get killed. That's stuff for kids. There's been a lot of discussion about this. Nightwatch has been number one in the UK for the past nine weeks, and I think it's sold more than any other Discworld novel to date i am beginning getting a lot of mail about the book, but I don't think there has been any really negative comments. It's dark and people do get killed. So the humor is closer to the humor of MASH. It's the humor that comes out of bad situations. Also, there is a bloody revolution. There's secret police. There's a torture chamber. You can't place too many gags into those situations. And then scrolling down the interview a mm. little bit. He says, for example, in Nightwatch, Vimes breaks into a secret police torture chamber and finds the cells where prisoners are kept. While nothing is described, the scene pulls the right levers to get your imagination working. The point was, if I had filled the torture chamber with the comfy chair and soft cushions for Monty Python's Spanish Inquisition sketch for a laugh, that would have been obscenity. We know that there are such people as secret police, and we know there are such things as real torture chambers in the world today, and sometimes you just have to say this. So there are and you always have to be careful you have to feel your way and make decisions as you go and so like yeah it is interesting that he's right that the humor of this book is different from ones in the past i mean we still do have a lot of humor but again it's more that he feels the need to actually just baldly state these things exist right and you have moments like this where it's stripped back
1: yeah vines has that where he's talking to the men and he's talking about oh how they're all- die they believe him and he and he has that thing of like oh well i shouldn't try for dark sarcasm
0: they should really be taught in schools which is a pink floyd reference
1: and as well like the whole mash thing like that's kind of a comedy i'm led to believe i've never seen mash but it's about the vietnam war right
0: it's about the korean war
1: oh the korean war okay i've like i said i've never seen mash
0: it's about a uh, medical unit during the Korean War, and so a lot of it mm. is that Isn't humor. is the theme
1: song also called Suicide is Painless?
0: I think so. But, like, it's basically about, like, the medical unit dealing with, like, atrocities of war. It is extremely funny, but it's very funny in a, like, making the best out of a bad situation way that he describes in that interview.
1: Mm, but also devastatingly sad at points from what I've oh, seen yes. on the internet.
0: It is. Very much so. Yeah.
1: But to return slightly to, I know you said we're not going to get bogged down into the trans thing, but like a lot of the stuff in this really echoes what we're going through now. The whole like revolutions happen again and again and again. Like recently, the whole principal resigning over showing Michelangelo's David in class and there being an outcry that that's pornography. Like it seems we're really regressing to this like ultra conservative, like 50s atmosphere again where there's all this like constant scare and uproar over minorities just existing you know and so like it just happens again and again and it seems to be that it always will um and so like this is really the the watchbooks have always been like prescient but this one feels like it's it's like really really prescient especially with the whole like civil war happening in Northmorepark
0: And this kind of brings us to what I think is one of the most interesting questions that Nightwatch asks. And it's a question that Vimes has to ask over and over again, is what does it mean to be a Watchman when the people who are breaking the law, who are doing the big crimes, are the people in charge? What does justice mean in a situation like this? Because he ends up following a very different code in this book than he would have under Vetinarii. Um, because Vetinari would yeah. never let something like this happen, and so,
1: but this also is a question when the that people keeps coming up. The crimes are other Watchmen as well.
0: Yes, and so you get this when when Rust orders him and the Watch to uh, fire on the barricade. He basically says, you know, don't take the law into your own hands to the the people on the barricade. But then he stops and he's like, well, what are they supposed to? Whose hands is it supposed to be in then? You know, if the people who are in charge are not you know they're they're waging war basically on their own citizens, then who does the law belong to? What does it even mean, you know, in that situation? You know, and so he ends up taking literally he says, I'm taking the law into my own hands and I'm gonna squeeze. And so like, you know, the idea yeah. is, is that he is he sees his job as being someone who obeys the law, but the law is supposed to work for the people. And that is why he ends up knocking rust out. Right. He says, I love his excuse where they was like, um, after the captain's clear attack of insanity and they're like, was he insane? And he's like, he ordered us to shoot on unarmed people. That is insane. Like that is the definition of insane. That's what causes him Hmm. to build the barricades. Right. And to, to actually like defend and keep the law in that small section of the city when the rest of the city is, like, dark, right? It's burning.
1: Yeah, and behind the barricade, then they have steak and egg. Like, they're yeah. able to live normal lives. Like, it's quiet there. And, like, this is something as well, you know, like, like you said, you wanted to talk about Vime stopping Sam from killing the torture. Like, that idea of when you break, it all breaks down. If you don't hold yourself above the muck, which is, you know, as Sam becomes Vime's, he will, you know, he'll have the whole, I watch the watchman thing. But like, if you don't hold that line, then it's, it's completely worthless because like the, this whole book, he's, he's been all about openness and transparency in the police force, you mm-hmm. know, with the, w- when the riots start happening, he has the door to the watch house open, you know, while, while he, while it's being attacked and he makes sure that everyone can see. And if people want, like when he brings the person in to be treated, people can come inside and make sure that due process is happening. He makes sure that there's a receipt gotten, even when they are supposed to be delivering people to the unmentionables. When, when this handed over people don't just disappear. He brings out cocoa. He brings out food. His whole thing is like, he's beginning this thing that like police should work for the good of the people. And they shouldn't take bribes. They shouldn't do, you know, like when he when he has the what's it? The go fast wagon, the
0: the hurry up wagon,
1: the hurry up wagon. Yes, the hurry up wagon. And he has like Mrs. Palm and whoever in them. And then he just refuses to deliver them for breaking curfew. And he says, well, I like, you know, I'm John Keel. I'm at this place. You know, you can find if you have any problem, you can come to me. Like, that's what a police person should be.
0: This is a thing that has come up several times in the book, and it's the idea of the oath, right? Which is something Carrot brings back. Remember when Carrot insists on being sworn in at in guards, guards yes. and they're like, I, "We haven't done that in a while, but now, you know they're they're all sworn in, you know, with that really really dumb like insert recruit names here, you know, like <laughs> like type of language square
1: bracket yeah square
0: bracket yeah. But he talks yeah, about Van the fact like, that they oh, need to I do didn't. that.
1: Yeah, he says, I I didn't take the oath.
0: But then he does. He makes his younger self and the other ones to do it. He says the thing about coppers is, is that they have to be trained. He was all for getting recruits on the street, but you had to train them first. You needed like someone like Detritus bellowing at them for six weeks and lectures about duty and prisoners' rights and the service to the public. And then you could hand them over to the street monsters who told them all the other stuff, like how to hit someone where it wouldn't leave a mark. And when it was a good idea to stick a metal suit plate down the front of your trousers b- before attending to a bar brawl. And if you were lucky and they were sensible, they found somewhere in between impossible perfection and the pit where they could be real coppers, slightly tarnished because the job did that to you, but not rotten. That to me tells me how far Vimes has come. Like Carrot has done this to Vimes. Vimes now sees that it has to be somewhere between him and Carrot. Yeah. I just think that that's such an interesting payoff to all the things we've been talking about this entire series.
1: When you go back and view how Carrot like revitalizes the watch and helps Vimes begin the journey to becoming the person that like he is now. Like he's really like Carrot really reinforces what Vimes learned from Keel and I know that like it ends up being himself. But like yeah, like with reinstating the oath and things like that. Like he's reminding Vimes of those lessons that he learned. Like Vimes feels the need to make sure that Sam learns them. But Carrot then like refreshes him on it and reminds him like why he did, like why this then in Nightwatch is important.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I just think, I think that that's, it's a very interesting conversation here to be had about like, what role do cops play in public life? Because we've talked a lot about how this doesn't seem to actually be copaganda. This seems to be Pratchett trying to create an ideal police force. Like, how would this work in a fantasy world?
1: I'm going to, like, revise my opinion on that. I This okay. feels nearly like a treatise, like, in fantasy prose on how a police... Like, it shouldn't just be, like, creating an ideal for- police force. This is, like, a treatise on... like there's so much philosophy in this now on like the ethics of policing by consent and like the role of a police of police in daily life that it nearly feels that this is just like, this is what Hume would have written if he were a fantasy novelist, let's say, you know?
0: Yeah. If he was a fantasy writer, I love that.
1: All that Sam learns in this is completely pointless. If carrot doesn't come along because the lessons would then just have been wasted. Mm -hmm. So Yet again, we see like, just how important Carrot is to Vimes on the opposite side of that coin.
0: Vimes talks about like reflecting on his life between when you know, Sam is and where he is now. He says like it, the rules are what matter because they're, they're what kept him going. They're, they're what keeps his life together, except for that one time when even that wasn't enough and it had to be the alcohol. And, and that's where we find him in Guards Guards, when the rules have failed him yeah and it, it is really interesting to kind of see like this is the person before the rules failed and this is the person after the rules failed
1: but then as well like with and this had me bawling when um Venenari tries to make the offer of a statue for the seven people yeah and vimes refuses that you know said lord veterinary after a few moments it has often crossed my mind that those men deserve a proper memorial of some sort oh yes said vimes in a non-committal voice his heart was still pounding in one of the main squares, perhaps. Yes, that would be the, a good idea. Perhaps a tableau in bronze, said Vimes, sarcastically, all seven of them raising the flag, perhaps. Bronze, yes, said Veninari Really? And some sort of inspiring slogan, said Vimes. Yes, indeed. Something like perhaps they did the job they had to do. And this is another instance where, where Veterinary has underestimated Vimes. But no, said Vimes, coming to a halt under a lamp by the crypt entrance. How dare you? How dare you? At this time in this place, they did the job they didn't have to do, and they died doing it, and you can't give them anything. Do you understand? They fought for those who'd been abandoned. They fought for one another, and they were betrayed. Men like them always are. What good would a statue be? It'd just be, it'd just inspire new fools to believe they're going to be heroes. They wouldn't want that. Just let them be forever.
0: It's really powerful that scene, because yeah, it's very rare that Veterinari gets it wrong with Vimes. This is kind of an interesting inversion of the whole after Vimes does something, Veterinari tricks him into like accepting some kind of award. It worked last time with the statue of Stoneface, right? The idea of changing that the legacy of that person who's Vimes' ancestor, but it doesn't work in this case.
1: Yeah, because that for Vimes is like the ideal of What he wants the watch to be is that they step up for people who can't stand up for themselves without being asked. They do what's right just because it's right. And they shouldn't be applauded for that because that's just like the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. And he even says this to and this is where I think this departs from propaganda as well. This really highlighted the difference between the two for me. Where he says, "Because cops will often say that, right? Like we serve the people, and we, you know, we we stand up for oh, those yeah, who can't stand up for themselves serve. to protect and serve. But really, they don't, right? And there's so many ways in which they don't. But what I like, and this is what drew that distinction for me, is when Vime says we we have to, you know, keep the peace and protect people and They say, well, what about our orders? And he says, there was nothing in that oath about orders. Like, we don't follow orders blindly. Like, that is not what we are here for.
1: He makes the distinction even from him.
0: Right, even from him.
1: Nothing about order, even from him. So if they don't want to do that, then they're free to leave. And then as well, later on, when they're talking about keeping the peace, they say, what peace? And he says, this peace, P-I-E-C-E, like, even in this Even if he can help out the people in this area, then he's doing he's doing right.
0: But we took the oath, Sarge, and now we're disobeying orders and helping rebels. Doesn't seem right, Sarge, said Wiglet wretchedly. You took an oath to uphold the law and defend citizens without fear or favor, said Vimes, and to protect the innocent. That's all they put in. Maybe they thought those were the important things. Nothing in there about orders, even from me. You're an officer of the law, not a soldier of the government. And this is obviously something Vimes has talked about a lot, right? It's very important to him that the watch is not a military extension. The police in the U.S. right now are very militarized. And so there is a sense in which they are actually waging war on the American public. Yeah, Vimes is saying we should not be that way. We are not here to wage war on citizens. We are here to uphold the law and protect the innocent, right, without fear or favor. And that's just such a beautiful distinction for me. I mean, I know it's one that Vimes has talked about in the past, but the way he says it here, I think, is perfect. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other characters, because we get the fun part about time travel narratives is being able to see younger versions of characters that we already know. And so that we get a lot of that in this book, right? Let's start actually with let's start with Colin and Nobby actually because they're really the only members of the watch that we like know from the the other books that we get to see like really young versions of them. Colin is someone who's been in the watch for a couple of years so he's a little bit more experienced than Vimes but not much. This is also pre his military career. So a lot of our conversations about Colin in the past have been, you know, filtered through the idea that he is a veteran. He's not a veteran yet. In fact, this mm action is some of the first action he's ever seen what did we think about colon fred in this speaking of which i love the moment when vimes is like how long have i known you fred and colon's like a couple days he's like right seems longer
1: <laughs> i really like that because like the bond like you can tell in the early watch books that there are people who've known each other for years and like they're, they're really good friends in spite of everything that's happened and that somehow manages to shine through. Like when when Vines draws the line, and he's like, you know, if you're over this line, you're with me. And it says like it's something like it was embarrassing how quickly Fred stepped over that line. Like he recognizes something in who he thinks is Keel, and obviously sees it in Vines. Then, after having been imparted it by Keel, that he like resonates that it resonates with him. We still see that, you know, he's kind of slightly racist, you know, like towards trolls when Vimes brings up, when Vimes yeah. brings up detritus and needing him. And he, oh, I wouldn't want to fight alongside a troll and the same sort of thing he, he expresses against Klatchians in Jingo. But like, we really get to see he's, you know, he's kind of just a big hearted person in this and he's willing to do the right thing uh, and he's good at what he does.
0: I did love that moment because when they're like, well, what are we like, what, like when Vimes is thinking, well, well, what would I do if I was trying to take down the barricade? And he's like, well, uh," like somebody asks him that and he says, he thinks privately, well, I would ask Detritus to take down the barricade and I would make sure that the people on the other side heard me say it. And that would be that, you know, (laughs) like it is very interesting the way that in which he keeps fondly thinking about Detritus in this, like, oh man, if I just had Detritus here, this would not be a problem. It does say something about like how diverse the watch is now, and like how far Vimes and Colon have come in terms of appreciating that diversity.
1: Well, except for vampires.
0: Except for vampires, older Colon would probably cringe to hear younger Colon say this about trolls. What did you think about Child Nobby?
1: Okay, so I have a question. First of all, have you seen the Banshees of Air?
0: Yeah, I have. Yes.
1: Barry Keoghan in that should play young Nobby.
0: I mean, I imagine him being younger in this than Barry Keoghan, but I could see him actually playing that character.
1: And I think also then, I know I've brought up Fred Thursday from the Moore series with Colin, but I definitely think Roger Allum should play him if we ever do adapt them. Young Nobby is really fascinating because he's still like, I mean, obviously he has that like sort of tragic backstory that was hinted at in previous books, and we see just, like, how much, like, physical abuse he has in his family. But, like, they're still keeping with the whole he's somehow, like, alter to society. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah. But they're like, uh, we found this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, this weird, smelly, grubby little child in a coat. What I thought was so sweet was that Vimes' Vimes's first instinct is to make sure he's fed.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that, too. Again, he takes care of his younger self, but he also takes care of child Nobby as well.
1: Yeah, he, 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 makes sure, he makes sure Fred is on the right path by instantly, like, making sure he gets a promotion. And that, like, you know, he makes sure that Fred's confidence is all right. He makes sure that Nobby doesn't die on the street of hunger. You know, he keeps him... Well, like, you know, he keeps him paid and whatever, and that then inspires Nobby to become a Watchman. By the end, you know, he carves himself a badge of soap. That was so fucking funny. What's that word? What's that thing? It's like wax, but you can't eat it. Soap, Nobby. Remember that word.
0: It was very interesting to also see Nobby not as a Watchman. I mean, and I know he's a literal child, and, like, it inspires him to become part of the Watch, but, like, usually... You know, we're like, oh, the corruption is coming from Nobby, but, like, he's not part of it now. And so the corruption is actually coming from other places.
1: But, like, even when they talk about the old watch safe, I like when they talk about the old watch safe. And it's like, well, everyone knows the company, So it's good for storing tea in there and things you want Nobby to read.
0: Yes, <laughs> I did laugh at that. That was really great. You know, my like, jokes about Nobby, like, and when you find out it's Nobby, like, those are those are my favorite jokes of these series.
1: You can tell who Sam and Vimes are on this cover. And I'm pretty sure I can tell who fr- is on the cover of my book. You can tell Nobby; he's in the background as a tiny little kid in an oversized coat. Yeah, and he's the got concertina spoon sleeves.
0: Yeah, the spoon. Yeah. Yeah. I love that that when Snouty is like waiting to take the spoon back because he thinks that Nobby's going to steal it. And Vimes is like, there are more important problems than a child stealing a spoon. Like that is not the problem right now
1: yeah like that's indicative of of like what Pratchett thinks is wrong with the police forces that like it focuses too much on punishing things that aren't really offenses like minorities being out in public right aggressive policing of people of color when they're driving even if they're slightly over or under the speed limit like that's right. not really a crime that you should be worrying about
0: exactly exactly
1: I like that Vimes recognizes him even as a child like he turns around and he- Oh my God, that's Navi.
0: Man, it's like seeing a picture of someone when they're younger. Even if you knew them when they they were younger, you're like, oh man, you're such a baby in that picture. What did you think about not yet dead Red Shoe?
1: I thought that was pretty cool. And that it got like, he's... I thought that conversation with Vimes where, where Vimes is like, he's a revolutionary in the sense that he throws up graffiti. About the people, people who would clout him over the ear if they knew if they saw him doing it. Yeah, he's so entranced by the idea of revolution and this idea of like a socialist utopia because it doesn't seem critical of socialism. You know, in this in the same way that like people like Jordan Peterson talks about Marxism when he quite clearly hasn't read Marx. This is just like it acknowledges that the um. The actual practicality of, like, putting in this thing, like, it's idealism, but, like, when you're idealistic about this kind of thing, it doesn't really work. That bit at the end, where they're firing arrows, and, like, he takes just, <laughs> like, what must be, like, a fucking hundred arrows, and he's <laughs> still going.
0: Yeah, we got to see the how Red Shoe became a zombie, which feels like full circle from Reaper Man, right? Which is when we were introduced to Red Shoe as a character, and he's still idealistic, right? Like, he's still fighting for the rights of the undead, even, you know, in present day. But he's doing it in a way that I think is a lot more... It's still idealistic, it can still be kind of silly, but it's a lot more um, tempered with realism. Probably because of situations like this.
1: No, because as well, like, Reaper Man is a book about people coming back from the dead, but he's already dead. But what I thought was heartbreaking was the fact that like once a year he'll get into his own grave out of a sense of honoring the people who died and didn't come back like he feels like he owes it to them because they didn't they didn't get the chance to just get up and walk and continue on
0: he says it feels like solidarity I also thought that the per so again i I agree with you that this is not about a critique of socialism. It's a critique maybe of people It's a critique of the less leftists who talk about it in theory, but don't think about the practicality of these things because I, I think the best example of that is when he's arguing with the leather worker and he says like you know the people will seize the means of protection, and the leather worker says, but like, I am the means of production. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's, you know, like, when yeah, you say who's that... who's going to make the shoes? Yeah, who's going to make... You know, like, who are we exploiting? The cows? Like, you know, like, it's very much this, like... Red Shoe has these... All of these fancy ideas and words, which are good words. Like, people should seize the means of production. But it does... that. You're talking to the wrong people. You're talking to the people who already are the means of production.
1: Yeah, Red Shoe is someone who, like... Went to college and did a liberal arts degree and overheard people talking about Marxist socialism, but ne- but didn't actually do like a philosophy or political science course. And he was just like, that's good. I mean, like you, you see these people all the time on college campuses.
0: You see them on Twitter all the time, too. Like, it's like he never actually talked to someone who is poor.
1: Yes. Just when you're talking about on Twitter, I, I had an idea for like a fantasy story where it's like you know very much a kind of epic fantasy setting but they have the equivalent of twitter and i don't know where i would go with that but i just think that'd be hilarious where there was some sort of like magical interface where people would essentially just tweet
0: that would be really interesting actually like this and again like that kind of comes back into this whole thing of how much the watch has changed because vimes doesn't have any access to any of that steampunk technology right that he has in the future He has to like go back to like the old ways of doing things so it's it is an interesting comparison uh we also get to see dibbler young cut me on throat dibbler starting out in his business
1: who vimes gives his slogan to
0: he doesn't he say at the beginning because he's got the thing in his because dibbler was there too right he's wearing the lilac at the beginning and he says keel bought my very first pie
1: and he ate it all
0: he ate it all, and Vimes forces himself well, to eat it all. I know you're a Dibbler fan, so I had to bring it up.
1: This book really gave me all that I wanted.
0: <laughs> we have to, of course, talk about Vetinari, um, who is as, cl- is as close to a secondary main character in this as we get. Again, like you said, it is mostly Vimes all the time. But we do get a young Vetinari. I wanted to know, when you first started reading this, and Vetinari is wearing the lilac... What did you think of that? Because that's not a mystery that's really solved until the very end of the book. Because everyone else who's wearing the lilac is, like, not in government.
1: (laughs) Well, see, I sort of had two thoughts about that. And it's either, see, with another leader, you could put it as, like, a wearing of it. You know, in the same way that, like, politicians in the U.K., who are still, like, allowing the UK to bomb the Middle East will wear, like, the poppy and, you know, like, talk about Remembrance Day and stuff without that sort of, like, self-reflection where they where they will be introspective about the things they're doing. But then also, I thought maybe he's wearing it because Vimes wears it and Vimes won't get on it. Like, you know, when one of the other Watch members is wearing a lilac and he's like, oh, you thought you'd wear the lilac, would you? If you don't know where we're going then it's not important. And anyone important enough to know where we're going was there.
0: What did you think of young Vetinari, who seems to be a very gifted student in like the sense of the word that his teachers don't understand him at the Assassin's Guild?
1: So great. It really proves that like, how good he is. He's good outside of all the structures that people have. Like, what I thought was incredible was where they're talking about He just stands in the lobby and he stands there for like hours or whatever. And when they go up to, they ask, was he all right? And he's like, yeah, I'm just learning how to stand still. I'm teaching myself to stand still.
0: Yeah. And he doesn't wear black. I mean, he does like for official things, but like when he's actually trying to hide, he wears colors that actually allow him to disappear. He's the one who kills Winder at the instruction of his aunt, Mm. who seems to be the person that he learns the most from.
1: Yeah, but he doesn't, he kills him by frightening him, right?
0: Yeah, I mean but I think he would have actually killed him if that hadn't worked.
1: No, no, because just I wasn't clear.
0: Yeah, like but it like, seems like Winder had a heart how attack. He did that. So vetinari came to kill him, would have killed him, but Winder had a heart attack before he killed him. And I think well, that's because Winder is so on by
1: him seeing him.
0: Yeah, I think so. But I don't think that was Veterinari's intention. I think he just went with it.
1: Why didn't he do anything? And why didn't anyone else notice him? I know, like, there was the whole thing about them being maneuvered into groups and stuff. But, like, it seems weird that, like, Winder didn't cry out or anything. Uh, I don't know.
0: So that scene is really good, from my perspective, because it really illustrates the idea oh, that Winder fantastic Winder has no friends. Like, he has successfully mm. alienated everyone around him because of his paranoia, or he's killed them. And so they maneuver him into a situation where someone can literally walk in, kill him, and nobody says anything. Because yeah. they're all in on it. He doesn't scream or call out because he's so frightened because of his paranoia. But even if he had, no one would have done anything. Because he alienated so many people.
1: They do make that clip. Like, the, the Assassin's Guild always gives people an out. And they'll go after people. Only if they're too stupid not to take that.
0: And Winder was too stupid. And I like the thing about the bean, like the king in the olden days, the transfer of power, that kings get celebrated for things they do right and then demonized for things they do wrong. And Winder had done one too many things wrong. And so this was the city writing hmm. itself or trying to write itself. It doesn't actually write itself because it just brings in Snapcase.
1: Who kills Snapcase?
0: Don't know. I think I think in a previous book, they Probably said it was Venomar. a mob.
1: Oh, well, maybe, yeah. It'd be interesting if... No, but see, I don't think Vetinari would, actually, now that I Mm -hmm. think of it. He wouldn't kill Snapcase, because I think he would understand then that, like, a mob would come.
0: I mean, I imagine Vetinari was pulling the strings somehow, but, like... Because at that point, he was poising to take over. But it is interesting seeing Vetinari learning here, because he does have all of the characteristics that we're going to know and love later, but he... Doesn't – he underestimates Vimes, right, when he meets Vimes, because we do get their sort of meet-cute, where Vetinari saves Vimes from someone who is trying to kill him with a crossbow, but then when he's talking to his aunt, he says, I can't believe what I saw. I thought he was a thug, and he is a thug. You can see his muscles thinking for him, but he overrules them moment by moment. I think I saw a genius at work, but what? He's just a sergeant, madam. So, you can see that Vetnori isn't there yet. He's still a young man in a lot of ways, and he, he hasn't figured out. He, ha- he doesn't have the wisdom that he has later, right? He doesn't quite have the people reading that he has later, and he doesn't appreciate Vimes for who he is yet.
1: And as well, he notices that, quote unquote, that Kiel looks into the shadows. Yes. That he scans the shadows.
0: He says, I, I think he would have seen me if he had been looking.
1: Yeah, like we get those things where it's like the only appropriate time for someone to wear black is if it's in a cellar at midnight and that like v- Vimes can like black shows up in the darkness, which is like, that's true. I've definitely seen like black things, be it a cat or someone wearing black, like moving in the dark. Like it it is obvious.
0: And there's a lot of doubling there, right? Because Vimes talks about unfocusing himself. And so people won't see him, right? He learns how to like stand just so, so people don't notice him. To the point where a thief one time actually leaned against him for breath, right? And that Nari, yeah. on the other hand, has studied the art of being able to disappear. So there is like kind of that doubling between the two of them. I do think it's interesting that... The two people who apparently do teach vetinari how to be vetinari, right? Like the, the two big influences on vetinari are both women. Margalata, right, from Uberwald um, is one of them. And then his aunt is the other one, Madam. I think that we can see him being mentored by her. She's clearly very intelligent and plays this political game well, although she still underestimates Snapcase. She still makes the wrong move. As far as Snapcase goes. But she knows how to read Vimes. And I think it's that skill that she passes on to Vetinari.
1: Yeah. But also, like, I just thought it was very funny after all this thing about, like, and perhaps that's just, like, how far gone Vimes is. But I just thought it was funny that Vetinari appears and Vimes is like, oh, how long have you been there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty funny. I mean, he was distracted by his fight with Carcer.
1: Yeah. I did like that veterinary was like, oh, yeah, I witnessed a very good, I witnessed a a lawful arrest.
0: A lawful arrest. Oh, and you seem to
1: have dropped your badge.
0: You can pick that up. Yeah, I thought that that was interesting. And I think we're also supposed to take the idea that becomes more like his aunt later in life because his aunt has the cat who's like an old street cat who you know like is missing like chunks and like you know is flatulent and old and farts
1: a lot yeah right
0: and that's supposed to and be a waffles. parallel to waffles yeah and so like he also like there's a moment in where he's in the carriage where he's like he thought that when you talked about plotting like this that you should have like an elegant white-haired cat if you were going to have a cat at all clearly his position changes between then and when he gets waffles right uh, so you know, I think that is supposed much to be the, like
1: like Blofeld thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's supposed to be a sign of like growth in him as a character. Like he is in the process of becoming, but he has not become yet. But I did think that his thing at the end about how after he saw Keel fall, how he picked up the lilac in his teeth.
1: I I'm sort of like beyond words for that. I don't know. Like I love veterinary as a character and that i don't know that makes me love him even more he's trained as an assassin but then he went into this melee for like his own like i don't know obviously he thought that was right that's what i got from the narrative that he he felt this was the right cause but the fact that he put it between his teeth and then could use his weapons with both hands i don't know immeasurably cool
0: yeah i mean always going to be cool veterinary for sure he was also inspired by Kiel. Yeah. Which was actually Vimes. So it it does kind of bring this like full circle effect of he's the one who usually has to keep Vimes wound up. He's the one who has to push Vimes's buttons and support him in the ways that he knows how to support him, but it turns out that he was actually inspired by Vimes first. Which is yeah. kind of beautiful if you think about their friendship, right? And like their relationship and how it it's had its problems and like it's a very unconventional friendship in a lot of ways but like i do feel like they're closer at the end of this book than they ever have been
1: i know i think it like as well recontextualizes a lot and i know like we can't read that into it because th- this happens afterwards but it sort of like contextualizes their friendship where the younger Vimes hasn't done this and is not aware that the effect the effect that his older self will have on younger veterinari. you know especially like when um he pushes vimes too far and veterinari realizes this and he's like oh shit and then i don't know i wonder how he feels about things like that now knowing that keel was vimes
0: i don't know i mean i think that's a great question i do love that where he calls him sergeant at the end and vimes is like you knew couple of other people i wanted to talk about rosie palm who we know as you know we've we've seen her before especially in council meetings of the guilds like the meeting of the guild leaders she is the head of the guild of seamstresses she is the one who has consistently supported both vetinari and vimes despite numerous coup attempts you know when all the other guilds were mm. ready to throw vetinari under the bus what did you think about the younger version of Rosie Palm and the way that she was clearly dedicated to making a guild of seamstresses? Like, that's what she wants out of this revolution.
1: Well, I think that really shows why she's so supportive of Vetinari right the coup attempts. Because that's what Vime says. Oh, you think that Snapcase will give you a guild? Yeah. When he knows that it, it, it's Vetinari who really, like, creates the guilds for all of it. Like, obviously, like the Guild of Assassins and the Guild of Lawyers. And the Guild of Stonemasons and things like are things then, but it's Veterinary who like actively puts in place protections for seamstresses. She, you know, uh, like owes her livelihood and protection to veterinary doing a nice thing for her, doing a good thing for her. But as well, like it's not a knock on her character for her believing that Snapcase would do that, you know, because like ev- like you say, the madam was wrong about Snapcase as well. But we really do see, like, like she seems to be involved in, in um, guild politics and meetings of councils and stuff from, like, what she's seen being without a guild.
0: And I think it's interesting that the two faces we really have for this revolution are Madam and Rosie, and they're both explicitly sex workers. So this idea that, like... Yeah. The the sex workers are just trying to protect themselves. They're just trying to get out from underneath, you know, these these horrible laws and these horrible governments. And that is what inspires them to change things. And I wonder if whenever Snapcase eventually, you know, was mobbed to death or whatever happened, if they were the ones supporting veterinari the same way that they do oh, Snapcase. Probably. In this.
1: But see, like what I wonder is whether they weren't supporting veterinary because again like i don't know whether vedanari would have positioned himself as an incumbent if you know what i mean mhm because i think like it you know because we're seeing him become vedanari i wonder if the, like it seems at that stage where he would have just stepped into the vacuum of power you know like and because there's a lot in this book about like you can get a lot of things done if you look like you're the one supposed to be doing them yeah you know like how do you steal a canoe You just look like you've paid for it and walk out of the shop with it. Sorry, that's a common thing I say. I don't think anyone else says it.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, but that is what Vime says, and that's even what Carcer does, right? By the end of this book, Carcer's captain of the palace guard. How did that happen?
1: He just, like, steps in and then fills the role of a leader. He quite clearly doesn't like it. He wishes he didn't have to do it. And so sets up the city in a way where he has to, like, do very little actual managing. But the city needs a figurehead.
0: That's what we talked about. He does maintenance. He doesn't... Yeah.
1: I don't know whether, like, the mob would have, like, been supportive of veterinary before, but, like, de- they would have afterwards.
0: Yeah. It was something that I thought of is the relationship between sex work and veterinari because he's also the one that gave the oh, beggars no, like, guild I've, and the... Yeah, you know, no, like I'm not saying that things. that's
1: not a thing. I'm just, I'm just wondering whether, like the revolution would have been like a pro-veterinary revolution instead of just an anti-snap case revolution?
0: That is a great question. And I have a feeling that the revolution went very differently because I think veterinary would have learned from this one. There is a lot in this book about how the same thing happens every generation and nothing changes. Mm. Um, we even see Slant, a young Slant who is still involved in uh, ankh you know, who was, I guess, involved in ankh Pork politics long before we met him. You know, he says, you know, it, out with the old boss and with the new he boss. He was
1: president.
0: Yeah, he was president. That was perfect. Um, and so, you know, I think Vetinari probably watched this and thought, you know, things need to be different. And that means that the way we do things needs to be different. I mean, Vines even says that Vetinari was a breath of fresh air.
1: But now I'm wondering presumably, Vetinari doesn't die in this series. Like by the end of the Discworld books.
0: I mean, I'm not going to answer that question.
1: <laughs> oh, God, no.
0: That doesn't mean anything. That's not me indicating anything. It's just me saying I'm not going to answer the question.
1: Okay. But, like, presumably, it, it, like, if we, if we like, look at the long game, veterinary is going to die at some stage. So now I'm wondering what would happen to ankh after he dies.
0: I mean, knowing Veterinary, he will have planned for that. I cannot imagine veterinari not having a plan for that.
1: But as well, like he's consistently referred to as the Patrician, mm-hmm. and I know because he's like the—I know he's the one actually in office, and and whatever. But throughout throughout this stuff as well, people only ever refer to him as Winder and Snapcase. They're not called the Patricians. They're like veterinary really embodies that office.
0: Yeah, and that comes back to something that Vime says um when they're on the ver- when they're behind the barricades and he talks about how they had basically enclosed the quarter of the city that had all the food. That's where all of the like food was imported, isn't that part of the city? And he basically starts thinking about the city as a machine and he says like, you know, yeah. like this this city has to run a certain way or and any like interruption in that machine completely could break down everything you know he says Ankh pork is like two meals away from chaos at any time and he says "Vetinari understands that the other patricians didn't they just cared about money they didn't care food came from servants right they don't care about where the food comes from but Vetinari understood the machine and i think that that tells us a lot about how Vetinari." I mean, again, I'm not going to say veterinari is like a man of the people because I don't think that that's accurate either, but he is someone who understands that for a city to run, you have to take care of all of those little pieces.
1: He's a he's a man of the city.
0: Yeah. He has to think about things that's about what, where does food so come, come from. To,
1: yeah. Politician and policeman come from the same word. Polis.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so he's not as concerned with making himself rich or with, you know, being powerful, except for as a tool to keep the machine running.
1: You know, like Vimes says, oh, this wouldn't happen. This would never happen if Veterinari was in, you know, if Vendinari was in charge then, and like all the uprisings and attempted coups we see throughout Discworld, none of them stick, even when they try and, even when they try and convict him of murder. Um, right. But as well, like Vimes does the calculations in his head for how much the city takes for food at that time and then he then he like expands it out 30 years later arkmore pork is five times the, or four, four times the size it is then and veterinary has all of that like under control
0: and doesn't he say like is this what veterinary thinks about all the time <laughs> I loved that yeah.
1: line he's like so impressed by his mind again yeah. The fact that he can like keep that all in his head.
0: I also want to talk about Dr. Lawn, who is one of the few new characters that we really get. Dr. And he's Lon, still alive. And he's still alive. Yeah. Dr. Lawn is the Pox Doctor, is what he calls him. Um, but he seems to be the only doctor in Ankh Morpork who knows what he's doing, and he says it's because he trained in Clatch, where they have novel ideas about medicine, such as keeping the patient alive. What did you think about Dr. Lawn and his relationship with Vimes slash John Keel?
1: That was great. That felt the most like a sitcom. Yes. And especially like when Vimes goes to get him to attend to Sybil and he opens the door and he has a syringe again, but instead of like using it for a patient, he's basting a turkey.
0: <laughs> yes, that was perfect. And the whole his constant complaints about like people waking him up like he'll never sleep.
1: Yeah, and it's like, I don't know why I have a spare room. And then, like, during the barricade, when Vimes is doing, like, nonviolent action before they're fired on with arrows, he gets the message that, like, Lawn has all these beds ready and waiting, and he's really disappointed that Vimes hasn't sent anyone. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's really funny and how he, they keep calling him. Yeah. Although my favorite lawn thing that happens in the book is actually at the end where he's like making them boil all the uh, equipment that he uses to treat Sybil and Igor shows up to uh, volunteer his services and Lawn takes one look at him and goes, only if he's been boiled for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was perfect. <laughs> that was good. That was good. One last thing I wanted to mention before we kind of move into the end of this. Vibes doesn't kill Carcer. He's about to. Oh,
1: good. This is this is the I was hoping that. We would come back to this because this is also something I wanted to bring up. He doesn't kill Carcer. But he's very close.
0: He's very close to killing Carcer. And I think I thought about this a lot during this book because this book, almost more than any other book, brings up the events of the previous book. It's not that they extend the events into this book, but he is very much thinking about killing werewolves in this book, right? When he's talking about the beast. He's
1: haunted by it.
0: And he is haunted by it. He doesn't think about Wolfgang specifically, but we talked about how he they kills Wolfgang. It up. They keep
1: saying. He they keep saying he kills where he kills wolves with his bare hands. He's haunted yes. by that moment where he crossed the line, he killed like not in self defense. He killed someone.
0: Yeah, and we talked about that a lot when we talked about the fifth elephant. This idea that he he gone close to this line before but never crossed it but then he crosses it with wolfgang because he realizes that unless he does it it would never end wolfgang would keep coming after angua keep coming after carrot keep coming after sybil and so he does what he has to do but he knows that what he did was murder which is what he says right and then we get something kind of similar with swing except for it is self-defense um what he does with swing but it does seem like he's constantly thinking about do I kill this person? Like, he's violated that code, and now he has to figure out what that means. He does kill other people defending the parricade and defending fighting in the street at the end of the book. There's a very poignant scene where he just, he says, all right, like, I this is what I've been saving the beast for. Like, save it until you need it. And he, like, straight up decapitates someone, you know, in this fight, yeah. which is much more violent than we've ever seen him be before. And so it is interesting at the end that he doesn't kill Carcer. It almost feels like a return, right, to who he was before the fifth elephant or like him struggling with the fact that it would be so much better if he could kill him. But he knows that he can't keep going down this road.
1: I thought that was great. But it's also like. What's interesting is that Carcer is quite clearly set up as being the same as Wolfgang. Someone who won't stop.
0: Right. He's he insane.
1: He won't stop. Like Yeah. No, he's not insane. He's completely sane.
0: Oh, right. That's right. That, he says like he's completely big, sane because he's realized the rules don't apply to him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He, he's looked at all the laws and realizes that he doesn't have to follow them. Because th- this is something as well that I, I think about as someone who works retail. Like how we're implicitly brought up to follow the rules passively. Like you go into a shop. And you walk around and you pick up the things, and then you go and buy them. When really, like, the only thing that's stopping you from just attempting to walk out and steal them is like your own personal beliefs that like what is right. And then you can extend this onto things like murder, um, obviously. But like, yeah, it's like Carcer is set up as the same. Like he's gonna keep killing cops. He's gonna keep doing stuff. But Vimes is constantly haunted by what carcer says on the clock tower i can see your house from up here there's that threat to sybil then and his his baby
0: but he doesn't do what he does with wolfgang why do you think that is
1: well i think he's learned from that but like he's he's so close like he tears his badge off and when carcer is throwing down his knives like it says like vimes's smile is is more intimidating than the like the than his rictus uh, than his rick does, like grimace. Mm-hmm. Like he's completely and utterly terrifying because like I think Carcer starts to see the lengths that Vimes can go to. And so it, like it's that thing that Veterinari says where he's constantly like overruling his muscles. Like if Vimes was if Vimes didn't have his self-control, his muscles just would have killed Carcer. Exactly. Because ultimately that's the moral choice. But he allows him to be arrested so the city can see him hang, which I think is fascinating because like he's still indirectly killing Carcer, but he's doing it through due process. Yeah, he's ensuring that it's not vengeance, but it's justice for the cops, the watchmen that Carcer has killed. It, it goes back to personal is not the same as important.
0: And he also expedites it, right? Like he's not going to let Carcer out of this. He is going to expedite yeah. this process, but it is this idea that he's sort of, I think it also has to do with the fact that he's in Ankh-Morpork, and he was in Überwald when he killed Wolfgang. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, like that stuff won't fly back home.
0: If for him, this is his home, and he has to, he has to obey that code or else everything falls apart again.
1: You don't shit. Where you like you don't shit where you eat.
0: Right, but it is. It does feel like a restoration in some ways of Vimes. Like this idea that, like, yeah, he did break his own code, and he's always worried that if he broke it once, he would keep breaking it. But he is able to break it once and then restore himself to where he was. And I think that means a lot to him.
1: Yeah, like he he's gazed into the abyss and it's gazed back at him, uh, and I know that's like the you know. It's kind of trite to trot out that piece of Nietzsche, but like the bit around that is is more fascinating for Vimes. Yeah, battle not with monsters, lest ye become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. And that's also like even the, the book that that comes from. I think is important. It's it's a uh, beyond good and evil. With Wolfgang, he's presented with like the worst that nature. Can make you know that's like he's the worst a predator can be um with carcer i think vimes comes up against the worst a human can be because like rust is bad but vimes knows how to deal with rust there's no way he can deal with carcer carcer must hang
0: well and carcer is also formed by the city whereas like Carcer's like the the most negative Of part of a city whereas Wolfgang is the most negative part of like the natural world right the outside of the city because Wolfgang is from a mostly rural more feudal country so there is also Mm. that sort of comparison between the two. The the only thing I want to say before we get into our, our ending part is that there is a very subtle guards guards reference I mean I know that he talks about like the dragon burning down the watch house later the treacle mine road watch house which is its own like kind of circle right like we started in that watch house and guards guards and then it burned down but now we get it back again but we also get uh there's a scene let me find it there's a scene where a character is mentioned leggy gaskin who is like part like joins up with the watch in night watch and the actual like first line of Guards, Guards is, it had been a hard day for the Watch. There had been the funeral of Her- Herbert Gaskin, for one thing, because it starts with like with a funeral. And that's actually that character. So we actually get to see that character join the Watch, and then in Guards, Guards, we saw him die at the beginning, before the events oh. of Guards, Guards. Yeah, it's just an interesting little thing. All right, let's talk about death sightings. There are three in this novel and I think they're all really interesting the first one is actually 333 um in my book and it's when they are in the cable street you know secret police torture chamber vimes is thinking about like how horrible what is happening you know here he could almost understand a thug simple as a fist being paid decent money for doing something he didn't mind doing but swing had brains Who really knew what evil lurked in the hearts of men? Me. Who knew what sane men were capable of? Still me, I'm afraid. Vimes glanced at the door of the last room. No, he wasn't going in there. No wonder it stank here. You can't hear me, can you? Oh, I thought you might, said Death and waited. The last book we saw in The Fifth Elephant, Vimes could hear Death, right? Like, they were having a conversation in The Fifth Elephant do you think that's why Death thought Vimes could hear him in that moment, or do you think there was a different reason Death thought he could hear him?
1: I don't know. That's a really intriguing scene to put in, otherwise, because obviously, like we have, um... oh, what's the fucking what's the fucking story with the puppets? The short story that we we read was it Death and What Comes Next? No, uh,
0: no, that theater was, of cruelty, th- theater, theater, yes, of, theater cruelty. of cruelty.
1: Yeah, where, where Carrot goes and brings in death as a witness. Mm-hmm. But, like, obviously, death is hanging around there because it's an air... Like, it's a place that, like, reeks of death. And also because he's there because of Quantum and because Vimes is going to see kill some people. But also, I don't know. I feel like as people go on in the Disc World, they seem to be more and more in touch with, like, the powers that be like the elemental forces let's say of this world and so they're like more able to like understand the world and death and i feel like vimes is getting to that stage and maybe he's just maybe he's just too preoccupied maybe he's yeah maybe he's so focused on like reliving this well i i say focused on reliving this trauma more so i mean more so that it's like Taking up a lot of his head space, that he's like, he's focusing on the death that's around him instead of death who is beside him.
0: Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It's just interesting to me that death is actually seeming like he wants to have this conversation with Vimes, but Vimes can't hear him. It's just, I've never really seen this kind of interaction between death and a character before. The other two are when death comes for Swing, which I thought was a great moment where Swing tries to do phrenology on death. And Death is yeah, like, Death I'm is a like, bit of a tricky a one. I'm a bit of a tricky one. Yes, <laughs> that yeah. was great. And then when he came for Winder, and he says, you know, there is no more cake, which... Uh, it, it, that... You've gone
1: past the point of cake.
0: Yeah, which felt very much like yeah. a Marie Antoinette thing. You know, like the French Revolution let them eat cake. You know, we've gone past cake. There is no more cake. There is no Death of Rat sightings, sadly.
1: Although I don't... I feel like... I feel like he would have fit in though. Surely somewhere in this like revolution there would be a place for the Death of Rats. Even if it's even if he comes for Winder or Swing, I feel like that would be in keeping with like all the other humans that Death of Rats has come for. But I suppose maybe they lack the introspection for them to view themselves as someone the Death of Rats would come for.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe also the Death of Rats might have fallen a little too much into his gag territory. Like, again, he might have been focused more on the the other types of humor. But I don't know. There's also no sort references. So once again, we are out of sorts.
1: Yeah, but as well, that... I mean, that would really... I feel like be like out of place in in, um, Nightwatch, you know? Yeah. Like referencing sort is different to referencing let's say like clatch because that's a common enemy for ankh-morpork and it's also like other places are only brought up in regards to like specific things about characters like clatch is brought up in regards to colin's military service yeah about you know oh going going to show johnny clatchy and what's what and things like that but like like it says on the back of the book it's a discworld tale of one city with a full course of street urchins, ladies of negotiable affection, rebels, secret policemen, and other children of the revolution. Like it would feel out of place. Yeah. Nowhere nowhere exists outside of Anc Morport. Like in theory, the rest of France exists in Les Miz. But <laughs> in reality in reality, like it doesn't matter.
0: Paris is it's the just only place these
1: few Yeah. Yeah, it's these, it's these few arrondissements that the story actually takes place in. That's the world.
0: The first footnote is on page 25. The Igor employed by the watch as a forensic specialist and medical aid was quite young, insofar as you could tell with an Igor, since useful limbs and other organs were passed on among Igors as one might hand on a pocket watch, and very modern in his thinking. He had a DA haircut with an extended quiff, wore... Crepe soles, and sometimes forgot to lisp.
1: I like that he was another funny gag that Vimes wouldn't let him near Sybil. But the concept of him wearing crepe soles is really funny because that's for like crime scene contamination. You
0: yeah. know, he's a modern Igor.
1: Yeah, he's a modern Igor who care like who cares enough about the police force that he'll wear crepe soles so they can do their job. Because now we're starting to get into like with with the actual things Igor can do like, proper forensic criminology.
0: I almost wish that there, were, there was more Igor Cherry content. Like, they kind of together make up the CSI of, uh, of the Watch. I mean, I know Igor is also, like, their medical doctor as well. But I, I think that that would I, would... I would read a book that's just about the two of them, like, doing the CSI work for the Watch. Mm. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. What is your favorite footnote?
1: It has to be the one about the clock tower at the unseen university about old Tom, which is quite clearly a riff on big Ben. Uh, Cause I was very confused why there was these big gaps in the, in the text very well. He said, standing up again. Now we'll, now we'll care to tell them at the is going on and why old Tom ing repeatedly being a of magic, sir. I someone up the mechanism ponder shouted above the sound destroying silences footnote old tom the university's venerable clock told not sounds but silences they were not simply ordinary silences but intervals of noise absorbing non-sound that filled the world with soundlessness and i don't know that's just so fucking fascinating to me it's like i know really we have cool a lot about
0: world building detail
1: yeah and i know we have a lot of like you know like the opposite of things you know we have the pork futures warehouse we have wine that's brewed backwards in time you know so you get a hangover before you drink it and things like that but the concept of like sound destroying silences i don't know that's just really cool
0: my favorite is later on in the book when (laughs) the major is arguing with nobby about nobby's plans for the battlefield because nobby is like you get good loot off a battlefield and i think i'm gonna stick with boots and the major is horrified and he he Another says look at
1: parallel to lame is that's how marius becomes indebted to sonardiae because he saved his father while uh, trying to steal off of him in the battlefield
0: yeah so he says look at trooper gabitas there said the major now quite upset 20 years service a fine figure of a soldier he wouldn't stoop to stealing the boots of a falling enemy would you trooper No, sir. Mugs game, sir, said Trooper Gabitas. Footnote. And this was true. Don't bother with the boots, would have been Trooper Gabitas' advice had he been inclined to part with it. You need to bribe someone on the baggage carts to build up stock, and when all's said and done, you only make a few dollars. Stick to the jewelry. It's portable. Trooper Gabitas had seen too many battlefields up close to use the word glory without wincing. I mean... Pratchett has historically been very critical of war and warfare and talks about how horrible it is. And so like, this is not like a new thing, but I do like also that this major just cannot comprehend the fact that like the people who are forced to fight usually are quite poor. And if the dead aren't using it, you know, it's that is very clearly the logical leap to make.
1: Yeah. Cause it also talks about slightly later on the people who, you know who join the the watch or the army for the promise of food and a bed they don't have to share.
0: Exactly. What's something that made you laugh?
1: First, first of all, question: Does your edition have People's Republic of Treacle Mine Road at the start?
0: Yes, it does.
1: Okay, good. Because why is why is so much of the numbered things on them just elsewhere Alley, and they're all like completely all over the place. They don't run into each other in a lot of cases. Elsewhere Alley.
0: I think that it's just a way of saying unnamed Alley.
1: Yes, but why are they why are they labeled? I just think that's funny because you've got like things that are important to like the world of ankh Pork. You know, you've got the clatchy and Takeaway, which is something that we've. Is- and in the story, we've got the pawnbrokers. We've got Brother Sunshine's Sons Shonky Shop. They're that five times fast. The pawnbrokers, the funny foreign building, but then we just have one two three four five six out of a list of 29 things which is just elsewhere alley i think it's funny enough to comment on but what made me laugh was at one stage vime says it's not rocket magic
0: <laughs> yes i had to read that three times before i realized what was happening and it was very funny that feels like ponder Stibbon's style magic yeah I had a couple that I laughed at um, because we haven't really talked a lot about the humor, just that it's been different. But I I really liked the uh, when (laughs) they're looking through the pockets of the person who mysteriously died on the roof that we learn later. Betonari killed. Really? Who says the man on the roof was one of them? That's an expensive bow. And he didn't have anything in his pockets. Nothing. Not so much as a used hanky. Very odd, Sarge, said Sam loyally. Especially when I was expecting a piece of paper saying something like, I am definitely a member of a revolutionary cadre. Trust me on this, said Vimes, looking carefully at the corpse. Yes, that'd tell us he was a revolutionary all right, said Sam. (laughs) That, like, I was expecting there to be a paper. That was pretty funny to me. But the thing I found the most funny was the way that Colin, Wiglet, and Wadi kept expanding the barriers And the way that they had the metaphysical argument about the barriers, the, the, the reasoning. Supposing the area behind the barriers was bigger than the area in front of the barricades. Yes. Like, sort of, it had more people in it and more of the city, if you follow me. Then correct me if I'm wrong, Sarge, but that'd mean, in a manner of speaking, we are now in front of the barricades. Am I right? Then, as it were, it's not like we're rebelling, is it? Because there's more of us. So the majority can't rebel, it stands to reason. So that makes us the good guys. Obviously, we've been the good guys all along, but, right, it's official now. Like, mathematical. (laughs) I like the idea of being mathematically the good guys and how, like, metaphysical the barriers or the barricades got.
1: Yeah, because then you as well have that, like, when the amnesty is supposedly in place... And then Vimes is like, do you want to have a go on this side? Because now we're the ones representing the government in power and you're attacking (laughs) us. So you're technically the insurgents. Do you
0: you want us to take a go at attacking? That was really funny. I enjoyed that. What's something that made you think?
1: Like a lot of this book really made me think.
0: It's hard to pick something.
1: More so than any other book, I think a lot of this is like how this rhymes a lot with things going on currently. I don't know. Yeah, it re- it is really hard to pick one specific thing. I'm really struggling for one specific thing that isn't just like overall, you know, talking about class consciousness or talking about like how the rich are only out for their own self-interests. Do you have a specific one?
0: I have a couple, but the one that's really sticking out to me that we haven't talked about, because we've talked about a couple of them, where it's the one where he's talking about the people and about resurrection. Uh, revolutionaries. And he says there were plotters. There was no doubt about it. Some had been ordinary people who'd had enough. Some were young people with no money who objected to the fact that the world was run by old people who were rich. Some were in it to get girls. And some had been idiots as mad as swing with a view of the world just as rigid and unreal who were on the side of what they called the people. And then we go into what feels like a Bob Dylan song here. Vimes had spent his life on the street and had met decent men and fools and people who'd steal a penny from a blind beggar and people who perform silent miracles or desperate crimes every day behind the grubby windows of little houses. But he had never met the people. People on the side of the people always ended up disappointed in any case. They found that the people tended to not be grateful or appreciative or forward thinking or obedient. The people tended to be small-minded and conservative and not very clever and were even distrustful of cleverness. And so the children of the revolution were faced with the age-old problem. It wasn't that you had the wrong kind of government, which was obvious, but you had the wrong kind of people. Mm. I thought that that was a very interesting deconstruction of the idea of the people as a monolith and the idea that often... Both the government and the people who want to overthrow the government have unrealistic views of what the people are. This goes back to Reg, right? The idea that he had all these ideas that he got from somewhere, and it's not that they were bad ideas. It's just that they didn't take into account the reality of these people's lives. I will say one thing that doesn't age well in this book, and I meant to mention this earlier, most of this book ages really well. But there is one thing that I don't think aged well, um, and that is... When they're talking about how Swing banned weapons on the streets and put in place a curfew, I think the curfew thing is is very apt. But the whole argument about like, oh, well, like that was stupid to ban weapons because criminals don't obey the law and they're going to get weapons anyway. So people should just have weapons. That feels very much like a Second Amendment argument to me. And I don't know what it's like over in the UK or in Ireland. I know that there are weapons bans there that are much more strict than... In the US. oh yeah like
1: anyone who isn't a police person can't have uh, a weapon they can conceal like a pistol yeah so like on one hand we're we're quite good um and i know i've mentioned this before especially with like men at arms you know like when Gardi are carrying pistols you will they're like marked they're specifically designated as armed response units so, you know, they have and there have been gun based fatalities in Ireland, like as recently as 2020, there was the shooting of a person of color in Dublin by the armed response unit. So that was that was not good, but it's not nearly as bad as it is in the U.S.
0: Right. I mean, the fact that there have been over 130 mass shootings this year and in the U.S. and there's only been 87 days when we're recording this. Tells you everything you need to know about the problems in the U.S. with guns.
1: That's like an average of over one a day then, right? Yes. Oh, God, that's that's depressing.
0: Yes. I mean, try living here. It's horrible. Um, but like the idea. I very is, nearly was. Yeah. The idea is, is that like in places like the U.K. and Ireland, while you do have issues with your police force and with violence and with criminals, you don't tend to have mass shootings. And that can be directly attributed to the bans on, like, assault rifles, for an example. And so, like, to me, that doesn't age very well. The Vimes being kind of a Second Amendment person. I also don't actually see Vimes being a Second Amendment person. Because he seems... I don't know. Because he's always been weird about weapons. Like, he likes weapons that aren't... He doesn't like the Ghana. Because it's for killing, right? He always is a fan of weapons that can be seen but not used and so like to me it felt weird that he would say that
1: well no because i think this comes down to then as well like the thing of the second amendment like it's for a a well-regulated militia and it was written in a time when people were using like muskets and and rifles that you had to load individually not modern day assault weapons yeah exactly and vimes is thinking specifically in the context of specifically in the context of crossbows
0: and i get that i understand that it's a different context but the way that he says it is very much like what you would hear in the states when it comes to assault weapons like criminals are just gonna get them anyway
1: yeah and the solution to school shootings is to put cops with guns in schools oh yeah yeah. vimes would not
0: vimes would not go for that i don't think
1: I think it's not something that Pratchett is ignorant of because like there's been there's been school shootings since the eighteen hundreds in the u s that's when the first school shooting happened. It was in the eighteen hundreds, and like a lot of the a lot of the like I, it's weird to say like well known ones when it's something about like a school shooting, but you know like the notorious ones had happened yeah. by two thousand and two yeah so The concept of like school shootings as as we have them now as this kind of depressing cultural monolith was like entrenched in popular culture in the same way that like like terror like terrorism was like a thing that entered the mainstream consciousness after 9-11 for better or worse because it led to a lot of innocent people dying in the middle east which we don't talk about a lot
0: yeah it just it bothers me that that's in there and i think I think what Pratchett's actually trying to say is is that when you have a city that's that lawless in terms of the government isn't doing shit and is actually making the situation worse that people should be able to arm themselves because they're not going to be protected by anyone else. I think that's what he's trying to say, but the way he says it sounds very much like a gun guns rights activist and it just it very much rubbed me the wrong way. I know the cultural context is different but
1: in terms of things we didn't mention earlier on, I know I've brought this Mountain Goat song up before, but Yay! Genesis three twenty three is really apt for this one. The one about going back home, like where the the dude breaks into his own childhood home, and looks at the things, and you know, like see how the people here live now. Hope that they're better at it than I was. And the refrain constantly of I used to live here, I used to live here, I used to live here like vimes is quite literally like inhabiting his own past and he has to like deal with that as a person you know and he has to like you know because constantly when he's looking at sam he's like did i really used to say things like that did i really believe that and god i was so idealistic and hero worshiping and he has to hope that like now he's better than he was then but also, like, this profound sense of loss. Like, the person in that song, after leaving his childhood home, is in that much of a state that he, like, ends up breaking back into his own house because that's what feels right. Yeah. He breaks the lock on his own garden gate. And so, like, I don't know, Vimes is a bit at sea even when he comes back. Like, he has to hope that he's done the right thing and doesn't know until he actually gets transported back. Like, he, he even though he has the cigar case, he has to just hope that what he's doing is right, because he's completely lost. Everything that should be familiar is, is alien.
0: Yeah. All right. So, that's it for Night Watch. I'm so happy that we talked about it. Which, I mean, it's that book, right? It's, it's a book that you could... I, mean, I feel like there are huge sections of this book we didn't even talk about that we could have. But that's just... That's what it is. In the next episode, the book will be much shorter because it's a young adult book. The Knackback Mac Fiegel oh. get their own book. And we meet a new witch, Tiffany Aching, in the We Free Men. So this is the first one that you're going to be yes. rereading, isn't that right, Nigel?
1: I don't think I ever actually read the Wee Free Men.
0: Oh, okay. You read like later ones.
1: I yeah, I think I read I Shall Wear Midnight and A Hatful of Sky. On, I don't think because I was I was limited to what I could get from the library at that stage.
0: Gotcha. Well, I am really excited for you to read this. Uh, the Wee Free Men, as I've mentioned, is sort of. A branch of the Witch's books, but it, it kind of does its own thing. But it is connected to the Witch's books in some very uh, meaningful ways. So I'm excited for us to read it. I'm excited and talk to.
1: About it. I'm excited to go to the chalk, though. I love the, the chalk.
0: chalk. Yeah, this is also where the chalk is introduced. So a new, a new part of the Discworld. We can talk about that too. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel?
1: On their headphones, they can find me here. They can find Hyperfixations, where we're we're nearly at a hundred episodes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, among the stacks, that's doing things not for much longer. We'll be going on break after Tale 10. So that so you can then binge all of that first part if you want then. And then on Twitter, you can mainly find me. That's where I am, at Spicy Nigel, where between about I got tickets to see Boy Genius. Um Because they're coming to Ireland. Big day for the sad girlies. <laughs>
0: You can find me on Twitter at The You can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, and that is on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, and on Movie John, um, where I have been publishing stuff about movies, especially stuff about cyborgs and androids. By the time this episode comes out, I will have just released my piece on Perfect Woman. Um, you can find that on Movie John, um, which is moviejawn.com. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Og's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, follow on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel.
1: On the way back to Schoon Avenue in the dark of night, Vimes walked along the alley behind Clay Lane and stopped when he reckoned he was at a point halfway between the backs of the pawn shop and the shonky shop, and therefore behind the temple. He threw his cigar stub over the fence. He heard it land on the gravel, which moved a little. And then he went home, and the world turned towards morning. The end.